so you can see here. Okay, good afternoon, everyone. Uh, welcome to the December 4th, uh, 2023 uh, meeting of the Land Use and Transportation Committee of the Board of Supervisors of the City and County of San Francisco. Uh, we would like to welcome Monique Creighton today uh, as our clerk, along with John Carroll, and uh, I uh, am Supervisor Marianne Melgar, Chair of the Committee, along with Vice Chair Dean Preston and uh, Board of Supervisors President, member of this committee, uh, Aaron Peskett. Um, I would also like to thank SFGov TV for uh, supporting us in broadcasting this meeting. Um, do we have any announcements? Yes, thank you, Madam Chair. Please ensure that you've silenced your cell phones and other electronic devices you may have brought with you into the chamber today. If you have any documents to be included as part of the file, you should submit them to the clerk. You can just bring them forward to the rail and I'll find a moment to come and get them. The Land Use and Transportation Committee will hear comment on each item on today's agenda. When your item of interest comes up and public comment is called, please line up to speak along your right-hand side of the room. I'm indicating it with my left hand. Alternatively, you may submit your public comment in writing by emailing me. I'm the Land Use and Transportation Committee Clerk, and my email address is j-o-h-n period c-a-r-r-o-l-l at sfgov.org. Or you may send your written comments via U.S. Postal Service to our office in City Hall. That's the Clerk's Office, room 244. City Hall's address is 1 Dr. Carlton B. Goodlett Place, San Francisco, California, 94102. If you submit public comment in writing, I will forward your public comment to the supervisors on this committee, and I'll also include your comments as part of the official file upon which you are commenting. And items acted upon today are expected to appear on the Board of Supervisors agenda of December 12th, 2023, unless otherwise stated. Okay, thank you so much, uh, Mr. Clerk. Please call uh, item number one and two together. Agenda item numbers one and two are two ordinances amending the planning code to address citywide expansion of allowable commercial restaurant and retail uses. And Madam Chair, I'm in receipt of a memo from your desk requesting that agenda item number one be agendized as a committee report for potential consideration tomorrow by the Board of Supervisors. Thank you, and uh, I apologize for any miscommunication or misunderstanding last week. Um, I do wanna uh, make sure that everyone in the audience knows that any items that we have heard before in this committee, including this item, will be limited to one minute uh, for public comment. Um, so uh, I will invite Director Katie Tang uh, here from the Office of small businesses to give this presentation. All right, good afternoon, supervisors. Um, so as stated for item one, we would like to request the committee uh, send out that item to the full board as a committee report um, as was agendized for tomorrow's board meeting, December 5th. With regards to item two, which is a duplicated version of this file, um, following conversations with um, the community and, uh, and some of the committee members, uh, would like to just, uh, with a high-level overview, describe um, three categories of amendments that will be made at a later date. The amendments are not ready yet today. So um, the only action item we uh, would like to request of this committee in item two is to continue to the call of the chair uh, pending those um, uh, adoption of the amendments. So in high level summary, uh, it would be to amend the Polk Street Neighborhood Commercial District to principally permit nighttime entertainment use on the ground floor and conditionally permit them on the second floor. This is under planning code section 723. 
Uh, the second category is to amend the zoning control tables for RH and RM districts to include operating hours for limited conforming uses, LCUs, and to clarify formula retail controls for limited non-conforming uses. So that would be under planning codes section 209.1 and 209.2. And then lastly, uh, clarifying language regarding the proposed uh, change to waive uh, impact fees for change of use projects, and that's under planning code section 406. So again, for item two would just be to uh, continue to the call chair so we can adopt those amendments at a later date. Thank Great. you. Thank you, Director Tang. Um, any comments or questions? Uh, okay, uh, then let's go to public comment on this item, please. Thank you, Madam Chair. Do we have any public comment on agenda item numbers one and two called together? If so, please come forward to the lectern at this time. Madam Chair, it appears we have no callers, or no speakers. <laughs> okay, so public comment on this item is now closed. Um, I'd like to make a motion that we send item number one, file 230701 to the full board with a positive recommendation as a committee report. On the motion offered by Chair Mulgar that agenda item number one be sent as a committee report with a recommendation of Land Use and Transportation Committee, Vice Chair Preston. Preston, aye. Member Peskin. Aye. Peskin, aye. Chair Melgar. Aye. Melgar, aye. Madam Chair, there are three ayes. Thank you. And I'd also like to make a motion that we send uh, the number two, or that we continue it to the call of the chair. Continued as a call of the chair. On that motion offered by Chair Melgar that agenda item two be continued to the call of the chair. Vice Chair Preston. Preston, aye. Member Peskin. Aye. Peskin, aye. Chair Melgar. Aye. Melgar, aye. Madam Chair, there are three ayes. Thank you. That motion carries. Uh, let's go to item number three, please. Agenda item number three is an ordinance amending the Public Works Code to streamline and authorize the approval of certain neighborhood amenities, also known as Love Our Neighborhoods projects on sidewalks and within other public rights of ways within the Department of Public Works jurisdiction to reduce fees for certain minor encroachment permits, to waive certain annual encroachment assessments, to clarify the approval process for commemorative plaques and to clarify the permitting, revocation, and restoration requirements for all minor encroachment permits and affirming the Planning Department's CEQA determination. This item is also agendized as a committee report for potential consideration tomorrow at the board. Thank you, Mr. Clerk. Uh, we've heard this item a couple times already. Um, I want to thank, uh, above all, uh, Beth Rubenstein here with uh, the Public Works Department, um, the City Attorney, uh, Christopher Tom, uh, and uh, the folks at DPW who all put in so much time and energy to get this right. Um, I want to acknowledge Supervisor Stephanie Mandelman, Ronin, and Guardio and Chan for their co-sponsorship. Um, there's still some work that we need to do to get this program right, the Love Our Neighborhoods program. Um, much of it will be done through the regulations, uh, but we have a commitment and a willingness from the department to be transparent and collaborative about their regulations as they build them out the next couple months. I cannot stress how important uh, this is for my district and for other districts, um, because one of the things that makes San Francisco strong and wonderful is uh, the lo 
love that the neighbors have for each other, for the neighborhoods, and for the public space around them. So this is an attempt to cut down the bureaucracy and to support neighbors who want to plant gardens, who want to paint benches, who want to have little libraries, who want to do all of those things that make living in this wonderful, vibrant city the great thing that it is for those of us who love it. Um, Beth, uh, for, for Public Works, thank you for being here. I was wondering if you could come up and just talk about the final tweaks to the legislation um, and what you uh, intend to do to beef up enforcement. Sure. Yes. Hi, uh, Beth Rubenstein, Deputy Director of Policy and Communications for San Francisco Public Works. We're extremely excited about this legislation, as you know. It's definitely a win-win for the community and I think for the city for city government because it does streamline and clarify a lot of um, community-driven projects that are in the public right-of-way that we really want to support. Um, we're very supportive of it going as a committee report tomorrow to the full board of supervisors, so thank you for that. The next steps after, well, we're working on them already are the regulations. The, the regulations will have a lot of the details, for instance, about, I know folks are really concerned about planters, so we'll have very clear um, dimensions for, you know, public right-of-way and ADA accessibility and so on. Also in terms of, I, I want to just speak to inspections because I know that's come up a lot with planters. We, as part, you, Supervisor Melgar did introduce this legislation in June and when she did it was part of the budget and add back conversation. So we did receive budgeting for additional inspectors who could deal with these projects and that was very purposeful. Um, and so we expect to, you know, sort of uphold the regulations. I also want to reiterate what you said about the regulations, Supervisor Melgar, that we do want to uh, be collaborative with um, on them and so we're working on a draft now and in the new year uh, when it's in good shape we will share them with you all and have some kind of community feedback process as well. Thank you Mr. Rubenstein. Um, Supervisor Preston. Thank you uh, Chairman Elgar and thank you for your work on this and uh, your collaborative approach to this uh, legislation. This was not an easy one and I think um, it, it, uh, it just appreciate the, the thoughtfulness and the breadth of uh, this legislation. Um, we, d we had a, um, a comment uh, email fairly extensive from um, uh, Scott Feeney raising a number of issues around um, enforcement and, and, and concerns around DPW's um, enforcement. I'm, and I don't want to necessarily I, I think a lot of this will play out in the regulations and I think obviously the board can continue to exercise its oversight authority and and your office I'm sure will be in touch with DPW uh, regarding um, regarding enforcement issues and, and the updated regs there was one point though that I was just curious on um, it was a question about whether DPW could make a tier one projects the registration's public on a website, um, and I just wanted to get some clarity whether the plan is for that kind of information uh, to be public and available and searchable, or, or how a neighbor or someone with concerns about potential uh, violations or permits would, would right. proceed. Right, yeah. great question, and actually I have to look into it. I'm not sure, I need to check with our city attorney actually. Obviously I know that like building permits at DBI are public records. I'm actually at this cuz at this moment I'm not sure about sort of encroachment permits like what they're where they sit. So I do have to I know there's a desire for that and that is something we can work out in regulations but I have to 
talk to the city attorney. Okay, I, I'd love to get clarity on that uh, when, we, when you know more. Thank you. Okay. I believe they're all public record. Do you happen to know? Oh, sorry. <laughs> Not necessarily searchable uh, online. So, uh, Deputy City Attorney Ann Pearson, I suspect that most of the information would be a public record. There might be some personal information, like a personal phone call or an email, phone number or an email that would need to be redacted. But otherwise, I would expect it to be uh, public. What I don't know that there's a legal mandate yet, though, to make that uh, information available online. And through the chair, I guess I would just raise that as a question. I don't know what the appetite uh, is. Again, I, I, we're late in the game here. I don't want to do anything. You know, I, I think it makes sense for this to proceed. I don't um, know whether that would be a friendly um, requirement or maybe something that you want to confer with the department and, uh, yeah. on. But it, it sounds like it might. I mean, unless the department can commit to doing it, but I understand they need to consult with city attorney. And it will so. probably cost money too. I mean, I, I right. think I I am all for transparency and to allow the public to be able to use modern tools uh, to search for uh, information in our databases. Um, but I think that that's something that we can keep working on. And as the regulations roll out, we certainly. Uh, want to continue supporting the department to make this successful and i think that this is one of the things that could make it successful thank you um thank you so let's uh if there's no other questions or comments let's go to public comment on this please thank you madam chair if you have public comment on agenda item number three related to these public works codes changes please line up along the right hand side of this room i'm pointing it out now and come forward to lectern Madam Chair, it appears we have no speakers on this item. Okay, thank you. Public comment on this item is now closed. I, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Come on, Mike. I, unclose it. <laughs> Come on up. Good afternoon, supervisors. Uh, thank you for the time and thank you for this uh, great legislation, um, really supporting um, the intention of this. And um, do want to make a couple of comments. Uh, my name is Taylor Algren. I'm a D9 resident and. Uh, generally supportive of um, the intention of this legislation. I do want to emphasize that um, there is concern that um, in the legislation, the DPW director has full discretion to, um, to accept a tier one project when it doesn't meet the guidelines. And this is a concern to me um, in particular because um, many of the, the planters that have gone in to keep homeless people from uh, being on a particular block have been supported by DPW, and we have raised this with DPW over the last uh, couple of months a uh, number of times, and uh, action hasn't been uh, taken to sufficiently, um, to, to, sufficient, to, excuse me, to sufficiently um, address uh, these issues. Um, we've been trying to work with our, our supervisor in D9 and also um, DPW to uh, resolve some of these issues, um, but they have not been resolved. Um, we're also concerned that uh, tier one um, projects uh, can be one landowner, but that landowner can own an entire block in the mission. PG&E owns an entire block. So under tier one guidelines, that landowner could put four blocks of planters all around the entire neighborhood, and that would be a tier one project. So I think there needs to be some limitation around that, like maybe it's 50% of the block of, of what the land, the, the owner um, is responsible for, something, some sort of guardrail so that we don't start blocking our entire 
um, sidewalks all the way across our, our neighborhoods. Thank you for the time and having a listen. Thank you. Thank you. Could we get the next speaker, please? And if we have anyone else who has public comment on agenda item number three, please line up to speak along that western wall of the room. Hi, how's it going? Um, this is also about tier one planters. My name is Aaron Brewer. I live in the Mission. Business owner. I use a skateboard to commute for transportation. Um, just a little story. Yesterday, I was hanging out with a friend out in the street, and there was a planter. It was about waist high. Um, some neighbor came out and said, hey, we just installed these. Can you not lean against them? My friend said, sure. And he you know, gets, backs up and you know, steps off it. And then you know, absentmindedly, he steps back and he leans on it again because he's waist high he should lean on it she comes back and she accosts us um you know she says don't you have any respect for this space this is our neighborhood we're trying to protect it this is the love your neighborhood legislation right this is what sounds more like a hate your neighbors legislation i live just up the block from where these planters were hanging out in public space and i remind her hey this is public space and she says well these are ours and you shouldn't be here Tier one should not include planters. Planters should not be the purview of private citizens. I've seen the budgets for paving in the city for public works. I see how much money is being saved. When you get contracts that come in below the estimated bids, you all have the millions of dollars to invest in planters if they are so important. Please remove planters from this legislation such that no private citizen can deputize themselves to block the right of way and then verbally accost people simply for existing in public space. Thank you. Thank you for sharing your comments. Do we have anyone else who has public comment on agenda item number three? Madam Chair. Public comment on this item is now closed. Um, so I just wanted to address a, a couple of things that have been brought up by public commenters. I think that we will continue to work on this legislation. Let me add that the uh, Love Your Neighborhood legislation has not yet been implemented. None of this is done. Um, and part of this effort is to put some order uh, into something that is sort of, you know, has no dimensions or rules, especially around ADA compliance and all those things. That's what we're trying to do. Um, and I think it may be an iterative process as the department rolls out the regulations. And we're hoping to just, you know, keep working together and um, address all of those issues. So. With that, I'd like to uh, make a motion that we send this to the full board as a committee report with a positive recommendation. On the motion offered by the chair that this ordinance be recommended as a committee report, Vice Chair Preston. Aye. Preston, aye. Member Peskin. Aye. Peskin, aye. Chair Melgar. Aye. Melgar, aye. Madam Chair, there are three ayes. Thank you. That motion passes. Um, now, please call item number four. Agenda item number four is a resolution initiating a landmark designation under Article 10 of the Planning Code for Greg Angelo and Velocity Art and Entertainment located at 225 San Leandro Way. And this item is also agendized as a potential committee report and may be con uh, considered tomorrow at the board meeting. Thank you. Um, so I'm very excited about this, colleagues, as you have gotten lots of uh, uh, correspondence about this item, and that's really great. Uh, it is one of the <laughs> best and most magical places in my district. Uh, San Francisco, as we all know, is uh, home to countless artists, creators, performers, um, and magic. Um, in District 7, we have one such place, uh, 
among others, but this one is pretty special. Um, the Griangelo Velocity Arts and Entertainment is an invaluable space for folks to gather from across the city to explore the creative side and uh, create community. Uh, from providing meals and employment opportunities for artists to perform uh, at the Griangelo Museum and other places, it is unlike any other space in San Francisco or in the world. Um, and I'm eager to ensure that they can continue uh, with their invaluable contributions to our city. So I am urging the planning department to initiate a landmarking for 225 San Leandro Way that, so that we can ensure that we can continue to preserve and support this invaluable community space and ensure that San Franciscans for generations to come can explore, imagine, and create together. Um, so uh, with that, uh, we just have a couple slides, a couple pictures so that you can see. And I know that um, you have been invited, colleagues, uh, and anyone in the public can uh, sign up. But um, I would highly encourage you to go. Um, go ahead, Emma. Can we show the slides? Great. So um, Supervisor Melgar said it all, but I wanted to provide a couple of photos because it is such a visual experience. Um, it's important that you guys see all that um, there is to offer at the Gregangelo Museum. So here's a few images of what, what you can experience at the Gregangelo Museum. Okay, thank you so much. Um, this is just an init initiation, as you know, uh, and uh, it is a process that will continue uh, until we uh, finally make the decision. Um, but with that, um, how about we go to public comment on this item? Thank you, Madam Chair. If you have public comment on agenda item number four related to the Greg Angelo's Museum, please line up along the western wall of this room and come forward to the lectern one at a time. <laughs> First speaker, please. It appears that we have one speaker at the microphone ready to begin. Okay, so you go ahead, please. Yes, I'm just going to ask that all the artists who work at the Greg Angelo Museum line up in the front, please, and I'll begin. My name is Greg Angelo. Um, I'm founder of Greg Angelo's Velocity Arts and Entertainment. I've been doing this since I was born and raised in San Francisco for as long as I can remember. Uh, the, the art house that's now called the Gargantua Museum is a byproduct of our, of our entertainment business. When times were tough, I would make sure the artists stayed employed and they would continue to build this art house, which is, um, has so far taken us 44 years. We have about 20 years of projected artwork to continue there. Um, during COVID, as we were in the public entertainment industry, we were the first to be shut down and we never reopened. Um, our industry really got hurt in San Francisco due to many circumstances, which I'm not going to go into at this point. However, we did keep working. We had that tiny property on San Leandro Way. We had four gardens. We turned the place inside out and working with all of the code San Francisco was giving us through COVID, we kept going. We had scientists from the Exploratorium, artists and uh, administrators from the Fine Arts Museums, ACT Youth Theater coming over and working. It was organic, it was magical, it was genuine. Um, I can talk for hours about it, but we really do represent the rainbow of culture and heritage in San Francisco. Um, I've had thousands, if not tens of thousands of artists going through that place, um, millions of, of audience members worldwide, but today, the staff who currently works at the museum is behind me. I'm going to let them in their voices. I'm going to, and let's keep this down to 15 seconds each, guys. I'm going to just let them take over and see what this means. All right. 
I'm before the next speaker starts, I, I'm not able to have you give your time to them, but I can start a new timer for each of the next speakers. Oh, okay. Next speaker, please. Thank you, Greg Angelo. Hi, I'm Michelle. Uh, I live in San Francisco. About 12 years ago, I was having a hard time finding work as an artist. No agent in town would give me a chance. And I emailed Greg Angelo, and in 13 minutes, he called me up. He invited me over uh, for lunch, and he gave me work. And I've been working for him ever since. And with the support of him and Marcelo, they encouraged me to create a show at the house for families to get to know each other. I'm a fairy in the show and I take the families through the realms of the, the fairy realms and they get to know one another and uh, the, the parents get to know how their what, what their kids think of adulthood and the kids learn about their parents what what they were like as children and it's a beautiful show and I and thank you <laughs> thank you next speaker please Yoshida Hiromi to my name is Hiromi Yoshida and I'm originally from Japan and um, I'm a working artist in San Francisco. I've been with Greg Angelo for um, the past 17 years, and um, the place truly helps me grow as an artist every day. And um, it's a unique, um, wonderful, unique place that all of the artists here, it's built and operated by the labor of love, which I witness every day. And then it um, has been, and I believe it will continue to inspire and touch the heart of people who visit San Francisco to his place um, from continue on from now as well. Thank you. Thank you, Hiromi Yoshina. Can we get the next speaker, please? Hola, mi nombre es Angelica Irreño y soy de Colombia. My name is Angelica, I'm from Colombia. Um, I work in artists in San Francisco. I've been working with Greg Angelo for three years and it has contributed my personal and professional growth as well as everyone present in this room and many other local and international artists that are not present today. It's a very positive impact in the community, the Greg Angelo Museum. Thank you. Thank you, Angelica. Can we have the next speaker, please? My name is Nick Brentley, and I'm a working artist in San Francisco. Hey, and I've been with the Greg Angelo Museum for just over four years. It's been the only place in my life where my complete artistry as a singer, musician, actor, dancer, and visual artist has been able to show up under one roof. I've never had that anywhere else. I'm also the tour, tour guide muse of the museum, tour manager, rather, of the museum. And I get to witness around 40 people every week come to the museum and repair relationships with themselves, with other people, the people that came with, and people who aren't even there. Uh, none of us are therapists, but it continues to be a place of healing for the people who come there. Thank you. Thank you so much for sharing your comments. Could we have the next speaker, please? Здравствуйте, меня зовут Марина Полякова. Hello, my name is Marina Polakov. I'm from Moscow, Russia. Uh, I'm a working artist in San Francisco. Uh, I have been working with uh, Greg Angela Velocity Arts for four years, and I have to tell you that this is the safest and most welcoming place uh, in San Francisco where artists from different countries can work together and create art. Thank you. Thank you so much for sharing your comments. Let's have the next speaker, please. Um, je m'appelle Dalou. Um, je suis né en Haïti. Uh, my name is Douglas. I'm from Haiti. My country is collapsed. Um, I'm here in San Francisco. Uh, uh, and I'm working uh, I'm here in San Francisco on, in, on 
una visa, humanitarian visa, and I am now professional working artist at the Greg Angelo Museum. Thank you. Thank you so much, Douglas, for sharing your comments. Could we have the next speaker, please? Hi, everybody. My name is Dekhtardam. I'm originally from Mongolia. Uh, I met first uh, Greg Angelo in 2001. I was touring around the world. I'm a professional dancer. Uh, ever since, I've been working with him full-time 22 years. And now I'm not just a dancer. I'm a makeup artist. I'm a customer. I'm a music artist. That's how Greg Angelo make like train artists, not just the one skill. He will train anything you can do, keep you full-time. And I call this place my home because I wake up every morning. I'm excited to go. It's the one place you never do things same. It's everyday new. It's very creative, magical place, and I love this place. Thank you. Thank you so much for sharing your comments. Can we have the next speaker, please? Hi, I'm Nina Hong. I'm a Vietnamese-American, originally from San Jose, California. I'm a working artist in San Francisco. I started working with the Greg Angelo Museum earlier this year when I was laid off from Google. I had been there for 15 years, and I decided to go on a tour at the Greg Angelo Museum, and I was so inspired that I asked if I could intern. Um, so I've been there ever since, and it's really been a place for me to explore my creativity. I've been training to do mosaic, build sculpture, so, um, and it's such a collaborative and beautiful place to be. Thank you. Thank you so much for sharing your comments. Could we have the next speaker, please? Hi, I'm Emily Liza. I'm originally from Connecticut, and I'm a working artist in San Francisco. Previously, I had worked in biotech for over 10 years as an analytical chemist. However, I found a sense of community, collaboration, connection, and creativity at Greg Angelo Arts. I'm excited for its existence, and I'm excited for its landmarking. Thank you. Thank you so much for sharing your comments. Can we have the next speaker, please? Hello, my name is uh, Monica Posseldon. Uh, I've been in San Francisco for over 36 years now, um, and as an artist who has lost their working space repeatedly, especially in the last 15 years, um, the Greg Angelo Museum represents an invaluable place of collaboration for many artists and performers. Um, also having a mental health background, I, I do participate in guiding people through the museum and I resonate with what Nick says, when we have such an overburdened mental health system, a truly artistic place that allows people to step outside of themselves and, and their, their regular daily life is just really invaluable. And yes, 40 individuals come through this museum and find reconnection with themselves and their families and their friends. And it is one of the most valuable places I have found in the state of California and in the country of the United States, which I don't always call home. Thank you so much for your comments. Could we have the next speaker, please? Hi, my name is Louis Xiu. My name is Yixiao Lok. I'm from, originally from Malaysia. And Greg Angelo and Greg Angelo Museum is the very first person who seen me, my art and creation, and generously opened his place and allowed us to create our healing art through tea. And because of Greg and Greg Angelo Museum, now I'll be able to create and bring 
this healing art through tea ceremony to Stanford and their university and faculty starting last year. It extend many people uh, suffering in mental health, renew their hope. I witnessed so many people come in with tears of joy, renew hope after they leave the, um, the museum and experience and read many touching letters for us. So this is a valuable germ that I can't appreciate enough. Thank you. Thank you for sharing your comments. Let's have the next speaker, please. 你们好,我的名字是周家全, and um, hi everybody, my name is Kai Kenny Chu, and I'm also originally from Malaysia, and I have been working and collaborating with Greg Angelo Museum since about seven years ago. I'm one of the co-founders of Fabla Tea, a tea company with uh, Ishao Locke earlier. And Greg Angelo was the first person whom I felt very supportive of our ideas because when we first started, I was uh, coming out from a depression and I was struggling with my identity. Greg Angelo Museum was such a welcoming space, very encouraging, very supportive, and allows me to be myself and also follow my dreams. And, and we have created a very special experience at a museum called Tea in Wonderland. So, and a lot of the guests who came through have an elevated sense of well-being and felt very magical and inspired again. So I truly support that uh, Grand Angela Museum to be that market. Thank you. Thank you for your comments. Let's have the next speaker, please. Hi, my name is Ian Futar. I lived most of my life in the Bay Area and uh, almost four decades in San Francisco, and then two of those decades, pretty much, at uh, Gorgangelo Velocity Art and Entertainment Museum. In that time, I've seen the staff and people uh, who participate uh, constantly be inspired and moved, and the museum and the staff in Gorgangelo are constantly innovating and I want to point that out. Thank you. Thank you so much for sharing your comments. Let's have the next speaker, please. My name is Marcelo, I'm from Brazil. I'm Marcelo, I'm from Brazil. I've been in the San Francisco for 40 years. Um, I was about to retire when I realized there was something else there, and it was this place. Everyone that you saw here that came before me are artists. There are giving incentive to do whatever they have on their minds. So this is a very fantastic place that we need to preserve. Thank you. Thank you so much for sharing your comments. Let's have the next speaker, please. Hello, my name is Anthony Rollins Mullins. I am a second generation born San Franciscan here in San Francisco, a working artist. Um, I have been working with the Greg Angelo Museum and Velocity Entertainment for a little over a decade. Um, and that has meant the world to me because it means for an occupation that is not always locally and federally uh, recognized um, financially. It means that I don't always have to make the decision between paying my rent and buying food. It has been a survival mechanism that has been fantastic as a working artist. Uh, and as a storyteller, it has been great to be one of the people that provides color in the lines that are created in this city. Thank you. Thank you so much for your comments. Could we have the next speaker, please? Yeah, Severin, I'm a resident of San Francisco. I think that was all the artists, so I'll be the first speaker to speak just as a <clears throat> citizen. Um, 
I want to first say that I appreciate the city's efforts in the uh, arts revival we're seeing. The SF, uh, Let's Glow SF and some of the things that are happening are fantastic. Uh, it's long overdue. But that same vein, I think it's important to preserve what we already have. Um, I see the museum as a destination place. When I have friends and family come, we always try to do that if we can. Um, and a lot of times we'll meet people there and end up going over to West Portal and having dinner or drinks or making friends for life. Uh, so I think it's good for the economy. Uh, lastly, as an architect with masters in urban design, uh, I feel that this uh, property fits in with the already fantastically whimsical neighborhood that's already there. So I support. Thank you so much for sharing your comments. Could we have the next speaker, please? Hello, Indra Mangal, uh, born and raised in San Francisco. I've been an arts administrator for 40-something years in the city and Bay Area. And one thing I wanted to say, you've heard about the artists and the interior of the building, but as somebody who's helped out um, at Greg Angelo's Velocity Circus, I have noticed that um, the... Greg Angelo is so welcoming of anybody that comes to the door. He's respectful of his neighbors. The space outside is always impeccable. And I think that's really important to say because you hear of a lot of activity happening at, um, at the building, but I think it's important to note that, that always there is an air of respect and um, I, I've helped out on Halloween a few years and there I counted 800 kids come to his front door, and it's and he he creates an environment outside that is just whimsical and beautiful and magical. So I want to say it's it's about employing all these artists, but it's also about who he is as a neighbor and a citizen of San Francisco. Thank you. Thank you for sharing your comments. Let's have the next speaker, please. Judy Seif. I'm retired. Uh, I'm a fifth-generation Californian, all in the Bay Area for me. When I first went to a museum five years ago, I was so excited in the art and the creativity and the joy, not just for me, but for everybody else who was there. And I take everybody there as a destination when they're visiting, including from other countries. It's an exposure to a beauty in San Francisco that doesn't exist anyplace else that I know of. And the response is always very positive, and I am so joyed to be able to share it. Thank you so much for sharing your comments. Could we get the next speaker, please? Hello. My name is Cecilia. Oh, could you, could you pull that mic right? There we go. Now we'll okay. hear you. My name is Cecilia, and I'm a native of San Francisco. This is a place that deserves to be open always. And I know most of the artists, and um, my contribution to them is uh, cooking. So I feed these artists um, every week, every month, and um, hope to keep doing that. It deserves to be open. Thank you. Thank you, Cecilia, for sharing your comments. Can we have the next speaker, please? Hi, my name is uh, Jeanette Conley, and I'm a longtime resident of San Francisco for over 30 years. And I have known Greg Angelo and their museum for about 10 years. And every time I have somebody in the neighborhood, I always bring them there. And I cook occasionally on Thursdays for him. 
and it's a fantastic place for artists to come and meet and to create and to get ideas and to move in different directions from Greg Angelo's house. He not only is his house a center for artists, but it's also a stopping point for artists to take off and go other places as well. I think it's very valuable to be in this city. Thank you. Thank you so much for sharing your comments. Could we have the next speaker, please? Yes, my name is Tom Duffy. I've been a West Portal, uh, in the West Portal neighborhood for 35 years. And I just want to describe when you walk into the museum, it's a, it's a place of wonder. Your eyes are going all over. What, what is this? Where am I? What time am I in? And the answer is, I'm in a world of imagination. I'm in the world of imagination of this extraordinary person, Greg Angelo, but it also stimulates your own imagination to start asking questions. What if this? What if that? And I think this what if uh, questioning and imaginative creativity is what really is one of the uh, special, unique aspects of San Francisco um, that helps create its culture, that helps attract people here from all over the world. And I've also seen the artists there uh, in the care of Greg Angelo, and they really feed off his sustenance, his encouragement to continue in their, in their with their talents. And therefore, I think this is a place that needs to be preserved, and I hope that you do so. Thank you for sharing your comments. Let's have the next speaker, please. Hi, my name is Kate Stechelty, and um, like Greg Angelo, I'm a native San Francisco, born and raised. Um, I've been a longtime supporter of the arts, currently on the board of the California Shakespeare Theater. And I have seen the Greg Angelo Museum grow over the years. It's homegrown, it's family friendly, it's unique. I've taken my children there. I've heard all the artists and I know that he supports the arts in San Francisco and I just, I just wanna thank you for considering support of this and for the arts community in general in San Francisco, which is so important to the personality of the city. So thank you. Thank you so much for sharing your comments. Could we have the next speaker, please? Hi, my name is Anna Limkin. I'm a longtime resident and proud parent of two children born and raised in San Francisco that have gone through the San Francisco public school system. Um, anyway, my daughter, uh, she's now a 20-year-old, and I learned of the Greg Angelo Museum and met Greg because he was a childhood friend of one of my dearest friends. And my daughter uh, has done an internship this summer and she looked forward every Thursday to go to this place where she had lovely collaborations and conversations. Um, she's a student of uh, design, so she was definitely in an ambiance where all of that is um, nurtured. Um, and I want to say I, I was able, I had the, the benefit of attending a tour and very moved because for me of the many museums I love to visit, I visited traveling around, this is a museum that touches the innate capacity that we each have that, of, of creativity and it reminds us of that. Um, so it's a wonderful catalyst for people of all ages, backgrounds, so I hope the city does its part to help preserve this. Thank you. Thank you so much for sharing your comments. Could we have the next speaker, please? Hi, my name is Melinda Lee. I'm a 40-year resident and homeowner of San Francisco and a 23-year full-time realtor. I'm calling, I'm sorry, I'm speaking today in support of Greg Angelo and his troupe and their commitment to the community. Greg Angelo has performed at my home church, St. Francis Episcopal Church, a um, couple of, pardon me, a couple of times. Uh, brought his troupe to provide uh, 
evening in Baghdad, full performance, uh, multicultural, multi-ethnic, um, family-oriented performance. He also has been instrumental in participating in Lakeside Landing, which is a neighborhood project uh, that you're familiar with. Um, I can't say enough uh, just to say that he does have our full faith and support. Thank you. Thank you so much, Melinda Lee, for sharing your comments. Can we have the next speaker, please? Hi, my name is Laura, and I have known Greg Angelo in some capacity for over 20 years. I am an events producer. I am also a writer for the San Francisco Arts Monthly. I've consulted with the Ruth Asawa School of the Arts, so I've been in the arts for many years. And Greg Angelo and I have created all kinds of things that are um, came out of the whim of a CEO, for example, of Oracle, or somebody who wanted to be a Batman. And I just go to Greg and say, okay, Greg, make it happen, and he always did. I've, I've written proposals and spent the night at Greg Angelo's overnight kind of creating a proposal that we then end up winning the business for 10,000 people for a party, and Greg has employed upwards of 60-plus artists, athletes, musicians, face painters, psychics, I mean, you name it, Cirque du Soleil type performances. And like many people have said, the, the, the museum is not only a museum that's an amazing space, it's an incubator, it's a workshop, it's a... It's a, it's a Santa's workshop type place of full of people who are just being creative, but he has contributed so much to so many of the events that have gone on in this city for all of the arts organizations, the ballet, and all of those. Every time there's a gala, Greg Angelo is called on, and often I would help him create that magic and make it all happen. So he, I highly recommend that this stay, oh, this, this stay in, in its place and continue to thrive into the next generations. Thank you. Thank you for sharing your comments. Could we have the next speaker, please? Hi, my name's Lainey Monsaf, and I am not one of the artists at the house, but I've known Greg Angelo for, I don't know, well over 10 years. And I don't know, I moved here in the 70s, loved this city deeply, and honestly believe that everything that Greg Angelo Velocity Arts is about, from the community inclusiveness to the all-around magic, just epitomizes what San Francisco should represent. And in my opinion, I can't see that there would be any reason on earth that anybody would not want to support landmark status for this amazing institution. And if you haven't been, you must. That's all. You just must. You will remember it for the rest of your life. Thank you. Thank you for sharing your comments. Could we get the next speaker, please? Hi, my name is uh, Sumit Banerjee. I'm a working artist in San Francisco. Uh, the uh, space has been invaluable and uh, essential for me uh, in my business, and I uh, uh, would like to wholeheartedly support this. Um, and I've never seen a space so beautifully uh, kept and uh, uh, well-preserved already. So this would be a real benefit to the city. Thank you. Thank you so much for sharing your comments. Could we have the next speaker, please? And if we have anyone else after this speaker who has public comments on agenda item number four, please line up to speak along that wall. Hi, my name is Gail Peary, and I'm a business owner in San Francisco. I am a chef uh, and co-owner of Foreign Cinema, and over the course of 12 or 15 years, the Greg Angelo Velocity Arts Museum has supplied our restaurant with amazing arts, artists and uh, has completely uh, allowed us to have benefits each year celebrating our anniversary where we can give, we have raised over half a million dollars to arts communities 
through, throughout the city. And because Greg Angelo Velocity Arts Museum is here in the city, we're able to do that every year. And we're looking forward to our 25th anniversary. And please consider landmark status to this beautiful, unique San Francisco location. I am a raised and born in San Francisco, been educated here, have never left. And this is what San Francisco is. It's Greg Angelo, Velocity Arts Museum. <laughs> Thank you for sharing your comments. Do we have anyone further who has public comment on agenda item number four? Madam Chair. Okay, public comment on this item is now closed. Um, I just wanted to say thank you to everyone who came out to support Greg Angelo um, and the museum. Uh, this is the beginning of a process that I hope will be successful. Um, if uh, there's no questions or, okay, go ahead. Supervisor Preston. Thank you, Chair Melgar. I'm very moved by uh, the presentation. I'm very excited to actually go uh, discover this magical place that I have never been to, uh, please add me as a co-sponsor to this item. Thank you, thank you so much. Uh, I would like to make a motion that we send this uh, to the full board with a positive recommendation as a committee report. On the motion offered by the chair that this resolution be recommended as a committee report, Vice Chair Preston. Aye. Preston, aye. Member Peskin. Aye. Peskin, aye. Chair Melgar. Aye. Melgar, aye. Madam Chair, there are three ayes. Thank you. Thank you so much. Okay. All right, folks. Sorry, we have a long agenda after this. So, um, Mr. Clerk, let's call item number five, please. Agenda item number five is a resolution urging the city attorney and the mayor to request that the State Department of Housing and Community Development first extend the deadlines for required actions for HCD's policy and practice review to ensure that all San Francisco's extensive collaborative work to further housing development does not lead to the decertification of San Francisco's adopted housing element. Second, revise and correct HCD's policy and practice review to be consistent with all policies in San Francisco's adopted housing element, including its policies and actions related to affordable housing and equity, as well as the city's legal obligations to affirmatively further fair housing, and to be consistent with San Francisco's status as a charter city imbued with the power of local action over municipal affairs, and setting forth that as part of the city's housing element implementation, it is the policy of the city to address the dual goals of production of new housing as well as the preservation of existing housing. And Madam Chair, like previous items on today's agenda, this has been agendized as a potential committee report and may be considered at tomorrow's board meeting. Thank you, Mr. Clerk. Uh, President Peskin, the floor is yours. Thank you, Madam Chair, Supervisor Preston. Uh, I discussed this last week. Um, the amendments that I made were considered to be substantive, so it had to sit for a week. Uh, the long title speaks for itself, but I think it is important for San Francisco and the Board of Supervisors to go on record uh, and um, in a respectful and policy appropriate way push back uh, a little bit and that's what this resolution does. Okay, uh, let's uh, take public comment on this item if there's no comments or questions. Thank you, Madam Chair. Do we have public comment from anyone here in the room on agenda item number five? If so, please come forward to the lectern. And then if you are waiting for your opportunity to speak, you can line up along that western wall of the room and we'll get to you after we've heard from the speakers who are ahead of you in line. Can we get the first speaker, please? Uh, yeah, good afternoon, Chair Melgar and Supervisors Preston and Peskin. My name is 
Priya Prabhakar, and I'm with People Power Media and the Race and Equity in All Planning Coalition. Uh, so REP, along with the Anti-Displacement Coalition and the Council of Community Housing Organizations, strongly urges the Land Use Committee to support this resolution, urging HCD to recognize the efforts that this board has already taken to remove barriers to housing and comply with our legal obligation to affirmatively further fair housing. We appreciate this resolution's intent to protect tenants and our most vulnerable communities and to take a stand for affordable housing and racial and social equity. Rep appreciates uh, President Peskin's leadership and the co-sponsorship from Supervisors Chan and Madaman, and the Rep Coalition hopes that this resolution will assert the board's intention to focus our city and state towards the equity-oriented actions in our housing element that prioritize affordable housing, tenant protections, and retaining the critical voices of our community. If we've learned anything, um, any lessons from redlining, redevelopment, and the tech boom-fueled displacement, it's that the voices of our most vulnerable communities have resulted in San Francisco leading the way in affordable housing production and tenant protections. Our voices are strong and visionary, and together we will build a stronger San Francisco. Thank you. Thank you, Priya, for sharing your comments. Can we have the next speaker, please? Yes, uh, good afternoon. I'm Stan Hayes, president of the Telegraph Hill Dwellers. And on behalf of THD's board, and it's more than 500 members, we strongly support this resolution. HCD's letter imposes arbitrary and unreasonable deadlines that can't possibly be accomplished in timelines as short as 30 days. HCD's approach is wrong, and destined, perhaps even intended, to fail when HCD's deadlines are inevitably missed, that will give HCD an excuse to decertify the housing element, triggering the fox in the chicken house, builder's remedy, stripping away local zoning control, handing developers unchecked power over their own projects. Despite a backlog of more than 50,000 units already entitled but not yet built due to a lack of financing, not the city, San Francisco should control San Francisco, not Sacramento. Please recommend this resolution for adoption by the full board. Thank you. Thank you, Stan Hayes, for sharing your comments. Could we have the next speaker, please? Hi, thank you. My name is Fran Schreiberg. I, uh, I'm a resident, um, been on the same block in Telegraph Hill since 1976. And I support the resolution urging more time to resolve these issues um, regarding San Francisco's already adopted housing policy so that we don't end up decertified and in litigation. Due process, which as everyone um, understands is both notice and an opportunity to be heard, is key. And our local policy and procedures should be focused on affordable housing for working class families as opposed to trickle-down housing, which is primarily housing for the very wealthy. I believe that we all want our housing priorities to be affordable housing, tenant protection, and of course, assuring community input. And I hope that we don't end up in expensive litigation. Um, San Francisco is a charter city and stripping communities uh, members and, and organizations of meaningful and timely uh, local control is not the direction that I hope we will be going. So I do urge um, adoption of the resolution that's being considered. Thank you very much. 
Thank you so much for sharing your comments. Could we have the next speaker, please? Good afternoon, Chair Melgar and Supervisors. Peter Papadopoulos with the Mission Economic Development Agency and also a member of the Choo Choo and Rep Coalitions. We strongly urge the support of this resolution introduced by Supervisors Peskin and Chan, asking that steps be taken to pause the implementation of the PPR timeline while inaccuracies and equity concerns are addressed. We also continue to urge HCD to meet with the nearly 100 organizations across the city that have requested a meeting to find solutions for equity, community stabilization, and affirmatively furthering for housing concerns that still need to be resolved. We remain concerned that some of the HCD PPR recommendations would move the city further out of alignment with affirmatively furthering fair housing law and the central strategies for meeting those legal requirements in the San Francisco housing element, a document which was completed under the close supervision of HCD only a year ago. Specifically, a number of the PPR recommendations appear to be in direct contradiction to the central San Francisco housing element frameworks that prescribe establishing a, quote, more equitable distribution of growth and uh, also in contradiction to HCD directives to cities under AB 686 that ask us to be transforming racially and ethnically concentrated areas of poverty into neighborhoods of opportunity without displacement. We urge you to pass this resolution today and for HCD to meet with San Francisco organizations to address our concerns. Thank you. Thank you so much for sharing your comments with the committee. Could we have the next speaker, please? Hello, Supervisors. Um, David Wu, Community Development and Policy Coordinator with Soma Filipinas. Uh, we, um, Soma Filipinas is in full support of this resolution, and we want to thank Supervisor Peskin for his leadership on this um, and putting this forward, and we hope that the uh, whole board of supervisors uh, will support this. Um, and we appreciate the board you know, responding to HCD uh, and, and speaking about uh, what really matters uh, for San Francisco. And, you know, we really need to be focusing on affordability and what really matters in our communities and the needs of housing um, and also recognized in the housing element uh, that is a huge concern, affordable housing and housing that is actually meets the needs of our low-income communities. <clears throat> and for Soma Filipinas in the south of market, we've seen what unchecked, uh, massive market rate development has done to the community um, in terms of advancing displacement. And so we want to thank you again and are in full support of this resolution. Thank you so much for sharing your comments with the committee. Do we have anyone else who has public comment on this agenda, item number five? Madam Chair. Okay. With that, public comment on this item is now closed. Do we have any uh, supervisor president? <laughs> Thank you, Chair Malgar, um, and thank you, President Peskin, for all your work on this. I would like to be added as a co-sponsor to your resolution. Okay. Um, so I would you like to make a motion, President no, Peskin? I, I, I don't have much more to say, and we've discussed it, and it speaks for itself. But I will say after in my 17th year out of the last 23 years on this body that complex pieces of legislation take a while to craft. And we saw that in uh, Supervisor Melgar's family SUD legislation. We saw that 
in the conforming of three pieces of uh, what became Mandelman's fourplex legislation. I think Supervisor Marr and Supervisor Safai had competing pieces of legislation. The three of us, uh, in conjunction with the public and public agencies, uh, over uh, a number of meetings, were able to um, do what a legislative body, if it's doing its job, does best, which is to hear from the public and balance those decisions. And the notion of imposing these 30-day deadlines with real or hollow threats fundamentally undermines the democratic process, public involvement, and legislative decision makers trying to get things right. It's, it's a, it is a dynamic that I don't think is democratic, I don't think it is societally healthy, uh, and I think is going to end badly. Um, not only for the physical plant and the people that uh, we want to protect in San Francisco, but for uh, the ultimate goals of creating more uh, habitable dwellings and preserving uh, housing for our most vulnerable and creating the housing that we really need most, which is housing that is affordable to moderate, low-income, and very low-income people. Um, and the fundamental scheme here really does not differentiate between luxury housing and affordable housing. Uh, and even though we have a housing element that speaks to uh, the preservation of rent control, to thwarting evictions and speculation, uh, the HCD uh, has in their, you know, letters to the city emphasize part of our housing element and de-emphasize other parts of it. And it's on us to get that right. And doing that with a gun, you know, pointed to our collective heads uh, is not, makes for bad process and a bad outcome. And with that, Madam Chair, I'd be happy to make a motion to send this item with recommendation to the Board of Supervisors as a committee report. Thank you. On motion offered by Member Peskin that this resolution be recommended as a committee report. Vice Chair Preston. Preston, aye. Member Peskin. Aye. Peskin, aye. Chair Melgar. Aye. Melgar, aye. Madam Chair, there are three ayes. Okay, that motion passes. Um, let's go to item number six, please. Agenda item number six is a resolution granting revocable permission to Otis Property Owner LLC to occupy and maintain the 12th Street Plaza on 12th Street at the corner of South Van Ness Avenue, fronting 90. 12th Street, accepting the irrevocable order of improvements from Otis Property Owner and Owner LLC in accordance with the terms of a, excuse me, in accordance with the terms of a Planning Commission in-kind agreement and dedicating said improvements to public use and adopting the Planning Department CEQA findings as well as findings of uh, conformity with the general plan and the priority policies of Planning Code Section 101.1. Okay, Mr. Clerk, um, I have received a request from Supervisor Dorsey's office uh, that we continue this item. Um, I don't see anyone here from his office, um, but let's take public comment on the continuance request. Very good. If we have uh, public comment for agenda item number six, please come forward to the lectern at this time. Madam Chair, it appears we have no speakers. Okay, um, let's continue, let's, I'm going to make, a, public comments closed on this, and I'd like to make a motion that we continue this item to next week. Um, 
On the motion offered by Chair Melgar that this resolution be continued to the next meeting of Land Use and Transportation, that's December 12th, 2023. Vice Chair Preston. Preston. Preston, aye. Member Peskin. Aye. Peskin, aye. Chair Melgar. Aye. Melgar, aye. Madam Chair, there are three ayes. Okay, that motion passes. Uh, let's go to item number seven, please. Agenda item number seven is a resolution adding the commemorative street name Panos Place to Corbin Place between the 100 and 200 blocks of Corbett Avenue in recognition of San Francisco resident Panagiotis Kotsoyanis. This is also agendized as a potential committee report and may be heard at tomorrow's board meeting. Um, okay. Um, I was hoping that Supervisor Mandelman uh, was going to be here to join us. I think we're maybe moving fast uh, for him, uh, but uh, I do see someone at the podium. Are here for public comment or? Yes, I'm here for that. Okay. I'm not, I haven't gotten to public comment yet. Uh, let's... Um, Go ahead and take public comment on the item, I suppose. Very good. We will take public comment starting now for agenda item number seven. If you have comment on number seven, please line up to speak, and we'll hear from you after we hear from this first speaker. No, because nine is good. Oh, and here's Supervisor oh, Mandelman. Okay. I, I'm so uh, sorry. Before you, uh, Supervisor Mandelman, who's a sponsor of this item, is here, so I'm going to let him uh, take the floor first, and then I will turn it over for public comment. Sorry, Mr. Clerk. Uh, we are now in um, item number seven, Supervisor Mandelman, the commemorative street name designation Panos Place at the 100 to 200 block of Corbett Avenue. Um, very exciting. Thank you, Madam Chair. Thank you, colleagues, for uh, considering this resolution to add the commemorative street name Panos Place to Corbin Place between the 100 and 200 block of Corbett Avenue. Uh, the Corbett Heights neighbors um, had approached my office about this commemorative street designation for Corbin Place, a short stairway with gardens connecting Corbett Avenue and 17th Street in Corona Heights in recognition of longtime resident uh, Panagiotis uh, Kutsoyanis. Uh, Mr. Kutsoyanis uh, has lived along Corbin Place since 2009. In 2011, he began replanting and maintaining the gardens surrounding the Corbin Place stairs. Over the years, he's also installed lights, seasonal decorations, public artwork, and an irrigation system. These generous volunteer efforts, all at his own expense, have helped beautify the gardens and nurture the Corbin stairs into a community gem beloved by the surrounding neighbors and the many muni riders who regularly take the steps to access the 37 bus on Corbett Avenue. The proposed commemorative street designation has been duly noticed by the Department of Public Works, and my office has heard nothing but positive feedback about this proposal. Um, and I would note that no houses or structures use Corbin Place as a street address, and with that, uh, I do believe we have um, folks uh, to talk about this item, but um, I would hope that the committee can forward it with positive recommendation. And thank you for considering it as a committee report to allow us to wrap this effort up before the end of the calendar year. Thank you. Thank you, uh, Supervisor Mandelman. So uh, if there's no comments or questions, colleagues, let's go to public comment now. Go ahead, ma'am. Thank you. You may now come forward for public comment. Okay, good afternoon. Seven. I am the acting head of the Board of Directors of Corbett Heights Neighbors, the Neighborhood Association, which includes the street known as Corbett from the beginning to its end, including Clayton. Very often I walk down Corbett, which runs parallel to Market Street from four blocks west of Castro to almost Diamond Heights Boulevard. 
when I walk down Corbett, which I do a few times per week, I always look forward to passing the two grassy areas on either side of what is now known as Corbin Alley, which contains about 40 steps leading between 17th Street and Corbett. The home of Mr. Panos K is close to Corbin steps on the southwest side. Mr. Panos has seen fit to irrigate and paint and decorate both sides of the stairway. Throughout the past years, Panos K has always had the two areas on each side of the stairway decorated for the next upcoming holiday. The areas are lush and flowered and interestingly decorated. Mr. Panos deserves to be acknowledged for the beauty and enhancement he has brought to our neighborhood and to the city and county of San Francisco with his beautiful plantings and decorations. I don't know anything about Mr. Corbin, about whom the stairs and alley we are speaking about is named. I do know that his name has been there alone long enough and that it's time to acknowledge the individual who has done more for that alley and that street than Mr. Corbin, I dare say, or anyone else could have imagined. On behalf of Corbett Heights neighbors, I'm asking that the ceremonial renaming of the stairs in the alley be affected so that it reads Panos Place. And Mr. Panos is here, and I'd like to ask that. Oh. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for sharing your comments. Do we have anyone else who has public comment on agenda item number seven? Madam Chair. Okay, public comment on this item is now closed. Um, any closing remarks, Supervisor? Okay, um, I would like to make a motion that we send this uh, item out as a, a committee report with positive recommendation for tomorrow's meeting. On the motion offered by the chair that this item be recommended as a committee report, Vice Chair Preston. Preston, aye. Member Peskin. Aye. Peskin, aye. Chair Melgar. Aye. Melgar, aye. Madam Chair, there are three ayes. That motion passes. Um, colleagues and uh, for the public, I'm going to take uh, you know the privilege of chair and uh, call item number nine next, as I uh, expect it to be relatively short. Um, and items eight and ten will take longer. So um, I would like to uh, turn it over to the sponsor of this item. Oh, I'm sorry. Call it first, <laughs> Mr. Clerk, and then I'll turn it over to President Peskin. Thank you, Madam Chair. Agenda item number nine is an ordinance amending the fire code to provide fire protection standards for the charging and storage of lithium ion batteries used in powered mobility devices such as electric bikes, scooters, skateboards, and hoverboards. Prohibit use of damaged lithium ion batteries in such devices. Prohibit use of lithium ion batteries assembled or reconditioned using cells removed from used batteries in such devices. And to require the planning, I'm sorry, and to require the fire department to conduct an informational campaign affirming the planning department's determination under the California Environmental Quality Act and directing the clerk of the Board of Supervisors to forward the ordinance to the California Building Standards Commission upon final passage. This item is also agendized as a potential committee report and may be considered at tomorrow's board meeting. Okay. Uh, thank you, Mr. Clerk. Uh, President Peskin. Thank you, Chair Melgar and colleagues. Uh, a couple of years ago in uh, the northeast corner of the city in the Golden Gateway apartment high rises, there was a fire that broke out as the result of a number of uh, 
private scooters being charged in an apartment unit that was uh, a hot, fast-burning fire that uh, was caused by lithium-ion batteries that first drew my attention um, to this problem, which if you look at the New York Times has been a, an extremely widespread problem in New York City uh, with close to 20 deaths and over 200 fires sparked by lithium-ion batteries that are now much more commonplace in micro-mobility devices ranging from electric bicycles, electric scooters, uh, hoverboards, electric skateboards, uh, and lithium-ion batteries when damaged or reconditioned uh, are susceptible to spontaneous combustion and fast-moving fires. Uh, thankfully, in the case of the Golden Gateway, the San Francisco Fire Department responded quickly and were able to put that fire out, but uh, numerous individuals were displaced for quite a long period of time. Uh, in 2018, by way of statistics, if my memory serves, we had 12 uh, fires associated with batteries that grew to twice that number the next year, three times that number the year after, uh, and um, have con continued to grow exponentially. Uh, I want to thank Chief Nicholson, uh, and more particularly uh, our Fire Marshal Ken Coughlin, for working with me in my office to come up with the legislation that is before us today uh, that starts, and I think there will probably be, this is the beginning of what will be a long uh, number of pieces of legislation that will come from this and future boards and probably at some point from state legislatures uh, that will deal, deal with this problem. Um, simply, this creates some uh, early initial standards around uh, the storage and use of lithium-ion batteries, and most importantly, I think, um, creates an, a teachable moment because if you have one or two or three of these devices, uh, our ability to enforce is going to be slim to none. I mean, if you are Lyft and you have hundreds of electrical um, bikes, you, you can, as a matter of fact, uh, Fire Marshal Coughlin and I worked with them to craft this legislation. But uh, we, this is an opportunity to teach the people of San Francisco, and as a matter of fact, the legislation has an educational requirement and component uh, that the fire department will be undertaking uh, in the years to come to you know, explain to people what they should and shouldn't do. Uh, yes, shouldn't, and this would outlaw it, use extension cords, uh, to charge these things, you should have a minimum distance between them. Uh, you should not have too many of them unless you have the proper uh, cabinets and what have you. With that, um, this is not my area of expertise. Uh, our fire marshal and our assistant fire chief, Darius Lettrup, are here um, to regale the committee, uh, but I commend this legislation to you. I have some very, very small amendments that more accurately reflect the number of fires uh, that are in one of the recitals which I have distributed to you that have the correct numbers um, and would love to, uh, subject to public comment and a short presentation from the fire marshal, uh, send this as amended to the full board with positive recommendation as a committee report. Thank you, President Peskin. Uh, welcome, Marshal. Uh, good afternoon, uh, 
Chair Melgar, Supervisor Peskin, and uh, Preston. Thank you for allowing me to speak on the proposed legislation. My name is Assistant Deputy Chief Ken Coughlin, and I'm your San Francisco Fire Marshal. E-bikes, e-scooters, and other powered mobility devices are an affordable and convenient alternative to cars, excuse me, and are essential for delivery workers and other San Franciscans who rely on this mode of transportation for their livelihoods. However, these new transportation options have also brought out serious challenges regarding fire risks. Fires caused by batteries that power e-micromobility devices are particularly severe and difficult to extinguish as they spread quickly and produce noxious fumes. While the fire department's normal method of a fire extinguishment, the use of water, can be used to cool lithium-ion battery fires, it unfortunately does not extinguish them. Lithium-ion batteries are self-oxidizing and cannot be cooled or starved out and extinguished like traditional fires. These batteries go into a thermal runaway, which occurs when a temperature inside a battery reaches the point that causes a chemical reaction to occur inside the next battery. This chemical reaction produces even more heat, which drives the temperature higher, causing further chemical reactions that create more heat. Fires caused by batteries that power e-micromobility devices are a significant problem in San Francisco, growing from 12, as Supervisor Prescott stated, lithium-ion battery fires in 2018 to more than 58 in 2022. From 2020 to 2022, these fires resulted in one death and seven documented injuries. That is one death and seven injuries too many. In the first 11 months of 2023 alone, battery fires have resulted in more than 40 documented fires, at least 15 of them inside buildings, and three injuries, posing a clear danger to residents when not properly used. The new legislation addresses these issues by establishing standards for charging and storage of lithium-ion batteries, prohibiting the continued use of damaged batteries, prohibiting the sale, purchase, use, or the assembly of reconditioned lithium-ion batteries using sales from used batteries, and it requires the fire department to develop a public informational campaign teaching safe use of lithium-ion battery devices. The standards established by this legislation promote the safety by adhering to a few simple code requirements. One is to limit the number of powered mobility devices permitted to be charged or stored per household or within an individual dwelling unit to only three. If the resident has three or fewer devices in their dwelling unit or home, they will only need to take basic safety precautions, use the appropriate and improved battery charger, inspect the batteries for damage before charging, and limit charging times per the manufacturer's instructions. If a resident or business would like to charge and or store more than three micromobility devices or batteries in the same room or area, then additional fire safety precautions must be made. These include ensuring adequate ventilation, having a separate electrical outlet per battery charger, ensuring minimum separation distances of both e-devices and batteries while charging to reduce the chance of fire spread if one battery was to fail and catch fire, not using power strips or extension cords, having a larger than normal sized fire extinguisher, and creating separate fire-related areas and rooms based on maximum allowable quantities or using approved battery charging cabinets. If more than six batteries or powered mobility devices are being charged or stored, then additional safety items are required. These include a sprinkler system designed and installed for the actual fire load and numbers of batteries being charged slash stored, and the installation of a fire alarm system with smoke detection. Two, if during the visual inspection of a lithium ion battery, damage is found, then the battery must be taken out of service and recycled. 
Owners should not attempt to reuse or sell used or damaged batteries. Batteries shall not be thrown in the trash. Three, due to the complex construction of lithium-ion batteries and the potential risk of unseeable damage to individual battery cells, reconditioned batteries shall not be used, sold, or assembled in San Francisco. Powered mobility device owners should only use new, original manufacturers produced batteries or another brand that has been listed and approved for the particular device. And finally, number four, the San Francisco Fire Department's Fire Marshal's Office will develop a public informational campaign on the fire risk and safety precautions that should be taken by owners of powered mobility devices using lithium ion batteries. The main safety topics of this campaign will include maximum charging times, where to place the device while charging, such as away from the exits, use of only original equipment batteries and chargers that came with the mobility device, what to look for on a possibly damaged battery, and how many bat devices can be charged or stored in an individual dwelling unit. Thank you for your time, and I'm available for questions. Thank you so much, Marshall. Um, thank you, President Peskin, for your work on this legislation. I know you wrote it just to keep my family safe. Um, let's go to public comment on this item, please. Oh, uh, Supervisor Preston, I'm sorry. Thank you. Before we go to uh, public comment, um, I, I want to thank uh, Fire Department for their work on this and uh, Supervisor Peskin. I want to be added as a co-sponsor. And I also just want to note, you know, we saw numbers on the screen around um, the number of fires and injuries, um, the, the fatality that is referenced there. Uh, was a 2022 fire in my district, in the Fillmore district. Um, there was a scooter battery fire in the unit, uh, and a person within that unit uh, died from the fire, and others were evacuated. Very traumatic uh, for the community, and I think we, um, and at the time, talked with uh, the department and, and all trying to brainstorm a little how to kind of get the word out, and at the time did, you know, some social media and email blast type warnings to constituents, um, but I'm really glad to see this being uh, pulled into a more citywide comprehensive uh, ordinance and particularly glad to see the, I think it's the last thing you mentioned around the public education piece, which I think is really, uh, is really significant here. So um, I want, yeah, thank you, uh, Supervisor Peskin for, for bringing this ordinance forward. Um, and this is, it really is a growing problem and um, getting ahead of it as best we can. It's already done significant damage, uh, but, uh, but I think this is a huge step forward in terms of preventing these kind of fires. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Mr. Clerk, let's go to public comment on this item. Thank you so much, Marshall. Thank you. If you have public comment on agenda item number nine, please come forward to the lectern and if you, uh, uh, and after the speaker, if we have additional speakers, you want to line up along that western wall and wait for your opportunity to speak. First speaker, please. My name is Tony Massara. Uh, through a series of twists, I find myself having purchased a condo on Knob Hill recently. And the building that we're in has already instituted a parking space for rechargeable batteries. And, and in an attempt to make sure that my new building follows these same best practices, uh, I had called the, the, started with the fire department's public information officer. I had fully expected to spend a substantial amount of time getting past the gargoyles at the gate to get to the decision makers 
To my astonishment, the public information officer had an answer for me on the spot. I had an answer from Supervisor Peskin within the afternoon, and the, the substantive issues that I was here to discuss ended up being discussed in a sidebar with serendipitously the fire chief that was here. So I, re I, I changed this to a procedural discussion of how easy it was for a citizen to become involved in this process. You should all be congratulated. Thank you. And thank you for in an environment where fire uh, uh, laws are written in blood. This one is written with only one drop of blood. And <laughs> that is really something to be congratulated. Gentlemen, thank you all. Thank you so much for sharing your comments with Best the committee. Best public comment of the year. Do we have anyone else who has public comment on agenda item number nine, uh, Madam Chair? Thank you so much, Mr. Clerk. Public comment on this item is now closed. Um, please add me as a co-sponsor. And uh, President Peskin, do you want to make a motion? I would like to move the amendments and send the item as amended with recommendation as a committee report for hearing at the Board of Supervisors tomorrow, December the 5th. Okay, I think that's two different actions, right? Amend a whole bunch amended. of actions I folded into <laughs> one big old motion. Amended first and then amended file to the board. <laughs> Just a moment while I catch up with my notes. <laughs> On a motion offered by Member Peskin that the ordinance be amended and then recommended as amended as a committee report to the Board of Supervisors for consideration at tomorrow's meeting. Vice Chair Preston. Preston, aye. Member Peskin. Aye. Peskin, aye. Chair Melgar. Aye. Melgar, aye. Madam Chair, there are three ayes on those two actions. And Madam Chair, I would be remiss not to thank and acknowledge Deputy City Attorney Jen Huber for her work on this. Thank you. Amended to the full board. It is amended and has been recommended as amended as a committee report for consideration tomorrow. Okay. We voted on it all at once. Okay. Sounds good. Sounds good to me. <laughs> all right. Thank you. Um, let's go to item number, back to item number eight, please. Agenda item number eight is an ordinance amending the planning code to encourage housing production by first exempting under certain conditions specified housing projects from the notice and review procedures of section 311 and the conditional use requirement of section 317 in areas outside of priority equity geographies, which are identified in the housing element as areas or neighborhoods with a high density of vulnerable populations and areas outside RH districts within the family housing opportunity special use district. Second, removing the conditional use requirement for several types of housing projects, including housing developments on large lots in areas outside the priority equity geography special use district, projects to build to the allowable height limit, projects that build additional units in lower density zoning districts and senior housing projects that seek to obtain double density, subject to certain exceptions in RH districts in the family housing opportunity special use district. Third, Amending rear yard, front setback, lot frontage, minimum lot size, and residential open space requirements in specified districts, subject to certain exemptions in RH districts in the Family Housing Opportunity Special Use District. Fourth, allowing additional uses on the ground floor in residential buildings, homeless shelters, and group housing in residential districts, and administrative review for reasonable accommodations. Fifth, 
expanding the eligibility for the housing opportunities means equity San Francisco home SF program and density exceptions in residential districts. Sixth, exempting certain affordable housing projects from certain development fees. Seventh, authorizing the planning director to approve state density bonus projects subject to delegation from the planning commission. Eighth, sunsetting the conditional use requirements established by the Corona Heights large residents and the central neighborhoods large resident special use districts at the end of 2024, and thereafter limiting the size of any dwelling units resulting from residential development in those special use districts to 3,000 gross square feet area, and making conforming amendments to other sections of the planning code, amending the zoning map to create the priority equity geography special use district, amending the subdivision code to update the condominium conversion requirements for projects utilizing residential density exemptions in RH districts, affirming the planning department's CEQA determination and making other appropriate findings. This is also agendized and may be considered as a committee report at tomorrow's board meeting. Thank you, Mr. Clark for that very long title. Um, for members of the public, you will remember that this committee has heard uh, this legislation several times. Uh, we uh, duplicated the file and sent the original file forward to the full board, um, but delayed it uh, uh, following a motion by Supervisor Mandelman to allow the duplicated file to catch up as it went to the Planning Commission and was heard by the Planning Commission. Um, and uh, with that, I will turn it over to Supervisor Mandelman to tell us what's up. Thank you, Chair Melgar. Uh, thank you, colleagues, for uh, considering a file that I'm sure you would not have been sad to see disappear from your agendas last week, uh, but we're back for uh, at least one more uh, with a copy of the file that, through the magic of duplication here at the San Francisco Board of Supervisors. So just to refresh folks' memory, um, I have raised several concerns about the Mayor's Constraints Reduction Ordinance, um, many of which have been addressed. Um, one of the Remaining concerns I have is my desire to not see um, the constraints reduction ordinance used to streamline the production of monster homes in my district. And um, back in October, um, I introduced an amendment. Uh, well, you all <laughs> um, duplicated the file to allow for my amendment uh, to deal with the, mo the monster home issue to be made to a duplicated file that would then be sent back to Planning Commission for their review. It went back to Planning Commission for their review last week uh, on Thursday. I wanna thank the Planning Department and Planning Commissioners for um, uh, their work to consider that file in a timely way so that we could get it back to the full board for what I anticipate to be um, action tomorrow. Um, the planning commissioners had a, we will hear from the planning department. From my perspective, the commissioners had um, some good thoughts and uh, useful proposed amendments for a variety of reasons. I think it, uh, in the interest of simplicity and time, um, it makes sense to uh, advance the legislation essentially as I introduced it a month ago with one change that I would like for us to, or for you all to make today. I think that additional amendments that were proposed by the uh, commission may make sense to make, and there may be opportunities to do that in coming legislation, but for now I would just like to get basically what we proposed um, a little over a month ago 
through here. And um, the one change that I would like to see made um, has been circulated to all of you. It's a very, it's a minor amendment um, that would allow for a 15% addition uh, within the Corona Heights SUD. We have that um, uh, that uh, uh, provision in the Central Neighborhoods SUD. We neglected to put it into the Cronites SUD. It really ought to be in both, and so I'm hoping that you can do that so that if we do have someone who has a home that is already 3,000 or more than 3,000 square feet and they want to add a modest something or other, they are not stuck in um, some kind of planning uh, debacle. Um, but with that, uh, I believe that amendment is not substantive. I understand there may be some additional amendments that might get considered today, and I understand that there is also a process that is being recommended by the city attorney uh, whereby everything but my monster home provision and potentially any other amendments to the legislation that might be considered by this committee um, would be stripped out of the file and you all could do that if you so choose and then forward a file that is basically just the changes that, um, that the land use committee is recommending. So my, my uh, proposed uh, monster home provisions and anything else that, come, that comes out of the conversation today, just forward that. I think if I, and the city attorney can correct if I have misdescribed what you all are proposing is the way to um, harmonize the two files. Okay. Uh I, You're the chair. Thank you. Um, President Peskin is on the board wanting to make comments. If that's okay, if we can hear the comments that he's proposing first, and then we can talk about the process. Um, thank you, uh, Ms. Risa Skide and, and Deputy City Attorney Pearson for your patience. Um, President Peskin. Thank you, Madam Chair. And I think some of these uh, amendments that I am suggesting we heard from the public about uh, at previous meetings and that I raised at the last meeting. Uh, they are in essence uh, five amendments to three sections of code or four sections of code. Um, and what I would suggest, given that two of them do not need to be re-referred, but are considered to be substantive, is that I, uh, after we make those that can be voted on and sent to the full board as a committee report, I duplicate the file and add the two uh, items, uh, namely 311 notification for the Chinatown use districts, uh, as well as specifying that objective design standards for development on large lots be developed with community input, those two would uh, be the subject of a yet again duplicated file for consideration next week. Um, but the ones that I would like to make today would be to add language to section 317 clarifying that buyout agreements do not need to be recorded as we did in Supervisor Milgar's family uh, special use district legislation uh, to add language also to section 317 uh, to require posted notice as well as mailed notice and then to add back uh, the ownership requirements to the fourplex uh, only for uh, units or multiplexes, two units or more in density, i.e., units that are subject to rent control. And um, 
relative to uh, item, the last item that I just discussed, which is the anti-speculation provision that we also added uh, after much discussion and community input to the family housing SUD. Um, and I want to put words in our planning director's mouth, but I have been assured that these will not run contrary to uh, HCD's urgence and acceptance of the legislation. Thank you so much, uh, President Peskin, and thank you, and also Supervisor Mandelman, for all your work on this. Um, Ms. Rizeski, that did you want to weigh in, or, or Ms. Pearson? Deputy City Attorney Ann Pearson, I'm going to um, rely on Ms. Rizeski for the harder questions. Um, but as to process, Supervisor Mandelman is correct. We did propose that any amendments you wish to advance today be made to the duplicate um, and before we move it on to the full board that we just strip out any pieces that are potentially inconsistent with the one that's there because that one has been subject to amendments since the duplication. Um, and as Supervisor Peskin proposed, for those amendments that are substantive, we can duplicate this version first and um, make the substantive amendments to the duplicate, the new duplicate. So the, the version that we are moving forward today as a committee report will only have the non-substantive amendments, um, which contain the uh, SUD uh, language that the Planning Commission opined on on Thursday. Correct. Great, thank you. Um, so we have here uh, Mr. Aaron Starr from the Planning Department who uh, has remarks. Uh, thank you, Supervisor Melgar. So the Planning Commission heard this item uh, last week and voted to recommend approval with modifications. The proposed modifications include the following. The first one was to change the maximum building size, and I'm sorry, I meant unit size, not building size, uh, from 3,000 square feet to 3,500 square feet in both SUDs. Two, allow a 20% increase in both SUDs. We thank the supervisor for adding the increase option to the Corona Heights. Uh, three, amend the planning code section 311 so that the word, word building permit is replaced with planning entitlement. This has to do with um, a state law change. Uh, we're holding off on this amendment uh, until we can talk to you more about it so you can understand it, but it is something that the planning commission recommended. And then fourth, for proposed expansions allowed under the 20% increase at a five-year look back on building permits to avoid serial permitting. All residential expansions during the five-year period should count towards the 20% limit, or 15 feet as it would be. And uh, I believe Supervisor Mandelman addressed that amendment. So that's all, and I'm happy to answer any questions. Okay, thank you so much, Mr. Saar. Um, if there's no other comments uh, or questions from my colleagues, uh, let's open this item up for public comment. Um, again, uh, for members of the public, if you want to give public comment, I'm limiting it to one minute since we've heard this item repeatedly. Thank you, Madam Chair. If you have public comment on agenda item number eight, please come forward to the lectern and then line up along the uh, western wall of this room, your right-hand side, my left-hand side. And when the first speaker is ready, please come forward and provide your comments for one minute apiece. Okay, okay. No, no, go, go, go. Please begin. 
morning, supervisors. Uh, my name is John Mendoza. I'm with the Latino Culture District. I'm one of the founders. And uh, I have a few words. Uh, uh, the acceleration of the market rate housing for the vulnerable ethnic enclaves can be expected to lead to widespread displacement and of immigrant small business mission and 24th Street. The destruction of community murals, demolition of unregistered historic buildings and the loss of other cultural assets. Protections of the cultural assets was the fundamental reason why we created the cultural district. The legislation will be removed, current protections, development with planning department and communities. Please amend or oppose this. Thank you. Thank you so much for sharing your comments with the committee. Could we have the next speaker, please? Hi, my name is Marta Sanchez. I'm also a board member of Calle 24. Um, without amendments, the Mission District can expect a number of harmful impacts, including outcomes contrary to our Housing Elements AFFH commitments and the re-incentivizing of new housing development of San Francisco's eight BIPOC neighborhoods, including the Mission, that have already built 85% of all housing in the city since 2005. This would be counter to the central framework of housing elements and commitments. And I wanted to add to how different the Mission District is from other neighborhoods. All neighborhoods have, are amazing in their way, but to try to change the Mission District in ways is, 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 not, is contrary. For example, I was watching the Finance Channel and the CEO of Chipotle was talking about how wonderful the Mission District was and hearing him talk about it on Bloomberg's Finance Channel was made me want to cry about how all his restaurants were based on the Mission District taqueria. So we, so we we're here for a reason to try to preserve all the greatness, and that's just one example. Thank you, Marta Thank you. Sanchez, for sharing your comments. Could we have the next speaker, please? Good afternoon, Supervisors. Celine D9, resident with United Save the Mission and part of Rep SF. Um, I just want to start by saying it's been disheartening to witness HCD falling out of compliance with the very fair housing laws it's supposed to uphold. The looming builder's remedy feels like a sick deja vu, reminiscent of the chaos caused by Monster and the Mission, granting developers the power to inundate the planning department with project proposals that may seem like progress, but it births two grave consequences. Firstly, it limits the opportunities for affordable housing as these grounds become monopolized by profit-driven developers, exploiting these loopholes. Secondly, it sidelines community voices, neglecting the very essence of radical development. We've seen this story play out before, and the outcomes are anything but equitable. And in the face of these unwarranted stress from the state, I implore the committee to reject or amend this legislation because it fundamentally steers our city away from its commitment to affirmatively further fair housing. Thank you. Thank you so much for sharing your comments with the committee. Could we have the next speaker, please? Thank you. Good afternoon, Supervisors. My name is Ben Terrell. I'm the uh, Secretary of the uh, Tenants Association of the Redstone Building in the Mission, and I'm also urging you to reject or amend because if this passes, developers will be able to swamp the planning department with project applications, like the one for the, what was last speaker referred to as the monster in the mission, 
This will mean locked entitlements leading to a reduction in opportunities for affordable housing as the sites become monopolized by for-profit developers exploiting loopholes. It will also lead, uh, lead to a disregard for community voices during project development. So I think it's really important to reject or amend. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for sharing your comments. Can we have the next speaker, please? Good afternoon. I'm Gary Gregerson with the Redstone Labor Temple Association. Also, we're a member of United Save the Mission. We strongly urge the Land Use Committee to reject, this, reject or amend this streamlining legislation. We appreciate the hard work that has gone into amendments, but unfortunately, even, even after we've commented for several months on this item, this legislation still fails to put vulnerable communities and affordable housing first, and it still violates the city's obligation to affirmatively further fair housing. Luxury developers stand to benefit receiving automatic approvals for projects that boost their profits without the obligation to build. On the flip side, this means fewer affordable housing options for lower income communities of color, leaving them with diminished choices and a sense of voicelessness in the process. Despite the unwarranted threats from the state, we were just committed to reject or amend this legislation as it finally moves our city in the opposite direction and violates its obligation to affirmatively further fair housing. Thank you. Thank you for sharing your comments. Can we have the next speaker, please? Hi, my name is Priya. I'm with the Rep Race and Equity and All uh, Planning Coalition and People Power Media. Rep strongly urges the Land Use Committee to reject the streamlining legislation. Um, even after Rep has commented for several months on this item, this legislation still fails to put vulnerable communities and affordable housing first, and it still violates the city's obligation to affirmatively further fair housing. And despite the hard work that's gone into the amendments, this legislation ultimately does not advance the primary goal of the San Francisco housing element, which is to build 46,000 units of affordable housing. By focusing solely on streamlining and reducing constraints for market rate housing, the city is putting itself further at risk of violating its commitment to, to, to affordable housing. The REP Coalition hopes that the city and HCD will commit to working with historically marginalized and vulnerable communities to refocus our efforts to implement the housing element in a way that affirmatively furthers fair housing and centers racial and social equity, which this legislation does not Thank do. Thank you, Priya, Thank for you. sharing your comments. Let's have the next speaker, please. Hello, Supervisors. David Wu with Soma Filipinas, a member of the REP Coalition. Uh, we continue to oppose this legislation as it continues to fail to meet the needs and goals of communities across the city and contradicts the housing element itself. We must build on equity-based aims and goals in the south of market and neighborhoods throughout San Francisco. This means centering the equity provisions of the housing element around community-based planning, affordable housing, and protecting existing residents. We cannot continue to pretend that demolishing our existing communities in order to make developers more money and to build for wealthy residents has anything to do with equity. Thank you. Thank you, David Wu, for sharing your comments. Can we have the next speaker, please? Good afternoon, Supervisors. My name is Steve Leitz from the Westside Tenants Association, and we're a member of the REP Coalition. We strongly urge you to reject this streamlining legislation. We much appreciate all the work that's been done on the amendments, but unfortunately, even after 
Many of us have commented for several months on this item, the legislation still does not put vulnerable communities in affordable housing first, and it still violates the city's obligation to the affirmably further fair housing. We urge you to reject this legislation as it fun fundamentally moves our city in the wrong direction. Thank you. Thank you for sharing your comments. Could we have the next speaker, please? Uh, hi there, Annie Fryman of the Spur here today. I'll try to be pretty brief. Um, we support this legislation advancing out of committee today and proceeding to the full board tomorrow. Um, in particular, I've read the summary of uh, Supervisor Peskin's amendments and we're fine and in support of those. I think the non-substantive changes really uh, cross some T's and dot some I's in a lot of the noticing requirements and other uh, just implementation provisions of this. Uh, the one minor, I guess, question or concern that we've got and just want to put on the record is um, the Monster Homes language that came out of the Planning Commission late last week. Um, I think there's a little bit of ambiguity still on if that is still compliant with the corrective action letter that came from HCD. It was clear no new substantive amendments. Uh, it called out the historic one but did not call it specifically Monster Homes. And so just want to make sure whatever we eventually pass out is consistent with the HCD letter. Um, and assuming that it is, then we would be fine with that as well. So thank you again, supervisors, and appreciate all the hard work you've done to get this legislation, hopefully, to our final step. Thanks. Thank you, Amy Fryman, for your comments. Could we get the next speaker, please? Can I have the overhead, please? Do I dare? SFGov TV. Thank you. Ms. Bright, start your time. All right. Good afternoon again, uh, Chair Melgar and supervisors. Um, Peter Papadopoulos with the Mission Economic Development Agency. We do continue to have concerns about this legislation, particularly uh, its failure currently to exempt uh, priority equity geographies and areas vulnerable to displacement from state density bonus streamlining, which is um, outlined in housing element 7.22 and 8.42, and including areas of vulnerable displacement in prescribed by 8.42 and 9.42. But what I wanna talk about is we greatly appreciated President Peskin bringing forward this legislation that attempts to provide formalized objective design guideline voice for communities of color. And we think that the one point we wanna bring up after discussion with his office, we think that after a few rounds with the city attorney, it seems to have resulted in a Venn diagram, accidentally perhaps, that uh, intersects NCs, cultural districts, and priority equity thank geographies. Thank you, Peter Papadopoulos, for your comments. So if we could expand that, thank you. Do we have anyone further with public comment on this agenda item number eight? Madam Chair. Okay, public comment on this item is now closed. Um, Supervisor Mandelman, did you wanna address the issue of the SUD? Or I think that's been. In what sense? One of the public commenters raised the issue of whether the language was compliant. In or maybe it's something that Ms. Reese-Eskide wants to weigh in on. No? Okay. Does somebody want to make a motion? Supervisor, President Peskin? I would make a motion to adopt the amendments described by Supervisor Mandelman as well as the two amendments to Section 317 that I discussed earlier and the ownership requirements that I discussed earlier. 
A motion has been offered by Member Peskin to accept the amendments as presented by Supervisor Mandelman and to make three other amendments to the ordinance as recorded on the documents he circulated earlier. On that motion, Vice Chair Preston. Sorry, can I just clarify that motion? Does that include, as the city attorney described, striking the rest of it, or does that need to be by a separate? No, that's separate. No. Separate? Just, just this you. motion. Aye. On that motion to amend, Supervisor Preston, aye. Member Peskin? Aye. Peskin, aye. Chair Melgar? Aye. Melgar, aye. Madam Chair, there are three ayes on that motion to amend. Do you want to make the motion? And then I would make a motion to duplicate the file as amended and then do, I can do these separately if it pleases the Madam Chair, make a motion to send the original, the original duplicated <laughs> file, but the original file to the full board as amended with Supervisor Mandelman's amendments and the amendments that I made that we just adopted uh, as a committee report without recommendation. Deputy City Attorney uh, Ruiz Esquede. One second, yes. Deputy City Attorney Andrea Ruiz Esquede, um, Supervisor Peskin, before you send it to the full board, we should um, make the amendments uh, to strip, strip everything else that's not right. going to the full board. Right. Uh, how would you suggest I articulate <laughs> those amendments, Andrea? <laughs> so it's um, removing from the ordinance, deleting from the ordinance, all the sections that have not been amended today. So everything except the two SUDs. Only one SUD was amended, but the other one is not in the main ordinance. So it should carry forward. So the two SUDs, so Supervisor Mandelman's, plus the 370, Section 317 that contains your two uh, amendments, Supervisor Peskin, and Section 207, which contains the um, uh, ownership requirement. Okay, so I will move that we send the item as amended and make a further amendment to strip away the balance of the ordinance uh, m minus the aforementioned amendments and send that to the full board as a committee report without recommendation. Recorded that in my book. I do want to just slow things down a little bit and take them serially so that we get them exactly right. So first it would be a motion to amend to strip everything out that has not yet been amended into the ordinance today. Correct. Offered by you. Correct. On that motion, Vice Chair Preston. Aye. Preston, aye. Member Peskin. Aye. Peskin, aye. Chair Melgar. Aye. Melgar, aye. Madam Chair, there are three ayes on that motion. And then I would like to make an, uh, a motion to send the item as now amended twice to the full board as a committee report without recommendation for tomorrow. On the motion offered by Member Peskin that the original item that was agendized today and now multiply amended be recommended sorry, be sent to the Board of Supervisors without recommendation as a committee report as amended. On that motion, Vice Chair Preston. Aye. Preston, aye. Member Peskin. Aye. Peskin, aye. Chair Melgar. Aye. Melgar, aye. There, Madam Chair, there are three ayes once again. Thank you. Now the duplicated file. I would now like to amend the duplicated file to add the Chinatown SUD notification 
amendments that I previously discussed and to add the objective design standards for large lots to be developed uh, with community input uh, for each district and then continue that item as, do you want me to strip out the balance? Deputy City Attorney Andrea Ruiz Esquide again. Those sections that you want to amend now contain the language that as it was when we duplicated it, so before it went to the full board. So the version that's at the full board today has other background language because it has been further amended. So in order to avoid confusion in the end, uh, we would recommend that you first amend those, two, those three sections to conform to the version that's uh, before the full board and over that conformed version, you make your amendments. So Got there's no confusion. It. Okay. Got to line everything up here. So I will make a more comprehensive amendment. In addition to those two amendments, I would amend... Wait, didn't we duplicate the file after we did Mandelman? Didn't we? Yes. Oh. They're yes. in there, though. But there's new sections. This is the, the large lot amendments are in section 121.1, 121.3. Ah, I got you. And the 311 is another section. So those got three so take are, the are amendments, outdated. Right. So take the amendments that are now at the full board and put them into the duplicated file here. I got you. So moved. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Mr. <laughs> very good. A motion has been offered by Member Peskin to offer the substantive amendments on the text that he brought to committee today as well as to make the previous amendments that were in the version of the ordinance that has been delivered to the board already. On that motion, Vice Chair Preston. Aye. Preston, aye. Member Peskin. Aye. Peskin, aye. Chair Melgar. Aye. Melgar, aye. Madam Chair, there are three ayes once again. And then I will make my last motion on this item, which is to continue that, uh, this item, the duplicate file, as amended for one week. Why? No, it doesn't have to be re-referred. All of this was discussed at planning last Thursday, along with Mandelman's amendments as okay. being okay, confirmed okay. with the affirmative head nod by Deputy City Attorney Pearson for the record. So it just needs a one week because they are considered to be substantive. On the motion as offered by member Peskin that the duplicated file now as amended be continued as amended to the December 12th land use meeting. On that motion, Vice Chair Preston. Aye. Preston, aye. Member Peskin. Aye. Peskin, aye. Chair Melgar. Aye. Melgar, aye. Madam Chair, there is, there are three ayes. Okay, thank you everybody. <laughs> uh. <laughs> Thank you, Supervisor Mandelman, for all your work. Okay, so uh, last but not least, let's go to item number... Number 10, Madam Ten. Chair. Agenda item number 10 is a hearing to report on the safety and conditions of the city's approximately 125,000 trees after weather in late 2022 and early 2023 to discuss the cleanup and tree maintenance plan and the impacts the storms have had on the goals and intentions of the 2014 urban forestry plan. Okay, thank you so much. Uh, and thanks everybody uh, who came to present and to hear on this item. We called this hearing last year uh, after we had extensive damage uh, all over the city. Um, 
due to something that was really an unprecedented series of storms. Uh, San Francisco was hit hard, uh, especially District 7 in the west side of San Francisco, which has so much open space uh, and parkland. Mount Davidson, Sutro Forest, uh, Stern Grove, uh, the areas around Lake Merced, uh, a lot of the land that is owned and stewarded by the Public Utilities Commission saw quite a bit of damage. Um, I want to assess the damage that was done, but also make sure that we're prepared uh, for this happening as uh, our climate is getting warmer and we're seeing more uh, precipitation and runoff. I want to make sure that our maintenance plans and our policies uh, support the health of trees and the open space that San Franciscans love and enjoy. Um, trees are sometimes seen as decoration, but in fact, they're one of the most important parts of the city's infrastructure. Our urban forest is a vitally important asset that needs to be invested in, nurtured, and managed. Trees uh, remove pollutants from the air and the water uh, in lower-income neighborhoods. Uh, trees serve a very important uh, function in soaking up uh, precipitation that happens more and more frequently these days. Um, they create greener, more vibrant neighborhoods. They make streets more enjoyable to walk and shop along. And street trees connect us to nature and enhance the quality of our daily lives. Um, they soak up untold gallons of runoff. The urban forestry turns millions of dollars annually in benefits. Because of this, because of that, in this hearing, I also wanted to uh, get an overall assessment of how the storms have affected our long-term goals uh, in terms of preserving our urban canopy. Um, we have invited representatives from Public Works, uh, Rack Parks, the Public Utilities Commission, Friends of the Urban Forest, um, the Urban Forestry Council, UCSF, who helps uh, manage the Sutro Forest, um, and the Presidio Trust Forester. Uh, I'd like to first hear from our uh, new uh, permanent director, Carla Short, yay, who began her career in San Francisco as an urban forester. Thank you, Carla, for taking care of our trees. Problem, good afternoon. Thank you, Chair Malgar, Carla Short. Director of Public Works, uh, here to talk about my favorite topic, trees. Uh, one note, I would just say the city has approximately 125,000 street trees, but we have an estimated 650,000 trees um, it, through, it, throughout the city and county of San Francisco um, on different types of property. So I will quickly um, give an overview of um, public works efforts to address storm impacts um, and to prepare for future storms. As you note, Chair Melgar, um, while we had unprecedented storms with our atmospheric river, um, we know that these will soon become precedented, uh, if that's a word, <laughs> and that we need to be prepared for the future and doing our best to anticipate extreme weather events moving forward and um, prepare for them as much as we can. So uh, the summary of impacts from last year's storms, we had more than 900 trees or branches that failed between December 31st and March 31st. I do wanna note that oftentimes we would get a call that there was a tree down when in fact it was a tree branch that was down. And um, sometimes those limb failures can be catastrophic and ultimately require the 
removal of the remaining tree. But many times they are not. And once the limb has been cleaned up um, and the wound has been cleaned up, that tree can stand. So we are actually in the process right now of working with a fellow to really clean up the data to determine how many actual trees did we lose. Um, and as I said, because it's not an immediate one for one, we may, we may respond to the emergency and then determine later on we need to remove the tree. Um, we're in the process of cleaning up that data. We received over 3,000 uh, tree-related service requests during that storm period. And the neighborhoods that were hit the hardest include St. Francis Wood, Brotherhood Way, Russian Hill, Downtown, and North Beach. <coughs> In terms of how we're preparing for the future, I just want to note that uh, Street Tree SF will help us prepare for future storms. By um, pruning trees more consistently, we are likely to be able to remove um, structural flaws uh, before they fail. Uh, we will be assessing trees as we prune them, and we'll be identifying trees um, that may need attention prior to storms. So um, just a reminder, Street Tree SF was uh, passed by the voters in 2016. It provides us with an annual allocation to care for, tree care, for street trees. And we're responsible for over 125,000 street trees. Um, we are targeting pruning 12,000 trees annually. We hope to get to a three to five year pruning cycle. That was the intention behind Street Tree SF. We took a big hit in terms of our productivity during COVID. Both our own crews and our contractor crews were initially paused, and then people had their own COVID impacts to their families. So we are not there yet, but we are currently at about an eight-year cycle, and that is down from a 12-year cycle when Street Tree SF was passed. Uh, we did focus on removal of dead and structurally unsound trees during the first few years, which I think we could argue helped prevent those trees from having failures um, or losing the tree um, during the storm. So we did remove about 6,800 trees during the first several years. We focused on the worst first. So the intention is that now we will be focusing more on pruning and we will have removed the, the trees that were at risk of failure. Uh, we tried to be efficient in our response, so our Bureau of Urban Forestry triaged tree failure response based on severity and threat to life, property, and transportation in order to optimize resources. Our crews worked throughout the storms, undeterred by heavy rains and high winds, and we were working around the clock during that time. What helped us be efficient? We had the mayor's emergency declaration, which allowed us to quickly bring on contractor tree crews with whom we have contracting relationships, but they were not focused on storm response. So this allowed us to create those storm response work orders for those contractors to get them in and operating uh, alongside city crews. Also, we activated our emergency operations uh, center at the department, and we coordinated with the city's emergency operations center to help triage more effectively and to get that real-time information. I do want to highlight that uh, historically our tree planting budget has been uh, two million or less, and uh, we take responsibility very seriously to replant trees that we lose, whether they're due to storm or other causes. Um, and Public Works received a $12 million federal grant through the Inflation Reduction Act to plant 3,500 trees over the next five years in low canopy 
underserved neighborhoods, which were also hit hard by storms. They also are often um, most impacted by extreme heat events. So this investment in planting in those neighborhoods is really, really critical. I will humble brag that this was the largest grant awarded in the state of California. We're very proud of that. Uh, we also received the California Natural Resources Agency um, grant to plant 250 trees and to support our workforce development program in the Tenderloin and South of Market. Uh, two neighborhoods with the lowest tree canopy um, in terms of street trees and canopy generally in San Francisco. And then looking to the future, the goal of our urban forest plan is to grow our street tree population to 155,000 trees by 2040. We are not on track to meet that goal, although our $12 million grant will help. Part of the challenge is a lack of sustainable funding for planting. As you noted, we expect to have storms increasing in severity with climate change. Also, unfortunately, young trees are susceptible to vandalism, and our costs are high when it comes to watering. So those are some of the challenges that we have. And with that, I am happy to answer any questions. Thank you, uh, Ms. Short, and congratulations for your new position, your new old position. I'm so proud of you. Thank you. Um, I do have a question uh, for you, and that is um, I'm so glad that you have these relationships with the contractors that can be mobilized, you know, immediately. Um, I think that that in the last round of storms uh, was really great uh, because we were able to address things uh, in a timely manner and keep up with the deluge of, um, you know, were chosen carefully, but uh, of, of uh, complaints from uh, folks who were worried about their life and safety because of uh, fallen trees. Um, but then in the few days after, there's all kinds of things that happen in the city all the time, and they don't stop because of the weather. So um, there was the annual Armenian uh, commemoration that happens up on Mount Davidson, um, and uh, you know the crews were not able to be mobilized by Rec Park. Um, um, I know that's not your department, but the question is about sort of timing uh, when uh, something like this happens and there are events or things that are planned already um, around it. It sometimes, you know, so in, in this case at the Mount Davidson, it kind of shifted the um, responsibility to uh, the organization, you know, that can afford it less than us in, in some ways. So I'm wondering if that's part of the plan that you have in terms of just making sure that things that uh, are planned around our city that often you know bring tourists and you know tax dollars to our city can go on. Yeah, that's a great point. Chair Melgar, thank you for that. Um, one of the things we, because we had success with our contractors last year, we've already been working on getting some storm response um, contractor service orders in place already so that we can have that uh, more immediate response. We are hopeful that we will not have uh, quite so many uh, failures this year, um, but in the case that we do, we will try to mobilize either our own crews and hand off other work to contractors or mobilize those contractors to address any upcoming events. I think it's a, it's a good point that we should proactively be looking at what's planned during the storm season so that we have that on our radar and we'll take that back. Thank you, thank you, Ms. Short. I appreciate that. Thank you. Any other questions? Okay. Um, next, I would like to uh, welcome Eric Anderson, who is the Director of Operations for um, the Rec Parks Department. Um, 
you have a lot of acres <laughs> of trees around our city that you manage. And so um, thank you for being here. And if you could update us on how you weathered the storm um, and your plants going forward. Sure. Thank you, Supervisor. Um, acting Director. Oh, sorry, just so Acting you know. Director. <laughs> um, let me... Uh, you haven't said yes yet. Like, Sorry? You haven't not yet said yes, like yeah. acting former Acting <laughs> Director, short. <laughs> That's right. So, um, yes, and so thank you for having me today. Uh, I'm going to give a quick overview of what our tree canopy is here. Uh, we do have 131,000 trees on 3,400 acres. Um, and apparently, as uh, Carla mentioned, some of the, as these estimates are very broad. We have our older number of 700,000 total street trees in the city, and that's probably been somewhat revised since. Um, as an overview, our urban forest, as we know it, is a, uh, not a native feature of San Francisco, but was largely planted at the turn of the century and features an aging and even-aged canopy with diseases and pathogens playing a role. Uh, impacting the forest, and that certainly impacts our um, our maintenance and our management of the forest. All right, so I just wanted to go through some of our uh, resources. Uh, in the interest of brevity, I, I'm going to put our operations resources in as well on this uh, slide. We have uh, about 28 total staff in our operations team. It's about a $6 million budget, and that staff is divided between those who work, um, our arborists and their supervisors, as well as those who do reforestation plantings. In addition, uh, we have capital funding of about a million a year for uh, contracted work and assessments. Uh, and in addition, we have our capital division funds and implements tree work related to specific improvement projects. Finally, um, we also look to outside sources of funding. We, we also got a uh, $2 million uh, Inflation Reduction Act grant for um, uh, reforestation projects in the southeast uh, part of the city. So we're really happy to be moving that forward. Uh, overall, our these operations and capital resources are uh, what we bring to the table for urban forestry management at RPD. So um, this past winter really was a quite a impactful winter. We saw two disaster declarations between the storms in uh, January and March. Um, I just wanted to really highlight the great work of our staff who uh, were out there and demonstrate such a high level of expertise and professionalism addressing tree hazards and cleanup. We lost an estimated uh, 650 trees, that's a rough broad estimate, um, on RPD parkland. And um, so with also with our operations team in the storm response, we expended upwards of $2 million in contract work to address hazards and assist in storm cleanup. So we have a dual uh, strategy there using our operations team and using the uh, capital contracted tree work. Uh, this resulted overall in a, uh, we've submitted a claim for about $2.18 million to FEMA, which we hope to get hopefully fully reimbursed. It's definitely eligible. 
which is good news. Um, you know, overall in our response, I would say that uh, some significant areas, as you can see there, were uh, Stern Grove, Dorothy Erskine, Edge Hill Mountain, Mount Davidson, uh, are, were some key areas. And certainly the, the level of the storms, uh, uh, our attacks uh, on our resources, I think our, our crews were really able to uh, act quickly, get things very uh, safely on the ground. That's, you know, our first priority, as Carla mentioned, we have to prioritize the response. And so the, the response begins with public safety and then it, it continues with making sure recreational elements and pathways are, are free and clear for access. And then the, our last priority is often tree debris that's on the ground sitting there safely can take a, can take a long time under these circumstances. And in, in this case this year, we brought in extra contractors to help with that as well to remove uh, down trees in everywhere from Stern Grove uh, onwards. So uh, a, a brief bit on our reforestation program. Um, we are uh, in the ways that our parks are designed with multiple uses, uh, our, our tree planting decisions are guided by the design and uses of the parks. And as well, we are really, as I mentioned earlier, um, many of our natural areas uh, are, are focused on non-forested landscapes. So uh, in the scheme of things, we are looking at both forested and non-forested um, restorations out there. Our department's goal is to plant two trees for every tree lost. And over the past five years, we've, we've reached about a 1.9 uh, uh, ratio uh, for planting to trees lost. And I would mention for last year, I kind of skipped that part, that we, even with the storm damage last year, we had about a one-to-one -one planting uh, ratio. In the, uh, in the broader term, our broader management goals are, uh, some of them outlined here, our strategic plan goal 4.1b uh, is calls for the development and implementation of a tree management database. Uh, we're currently piloting a GIS-based application, which we hope to scale up across the system. And this has been an initiative of a few years. We feel like the collection and management of our data is really the critical piece for us to really grapple with at Reckon Park and be able to uh, enable greater planning and greater management efforts. Um, and also highlighting there, there are a few critical plans that have uh, informed our efforts over the years, the uh, Hort Science Assessment of Urban Forestry Operations and our Natural Resource Management Plan. So with that, any questions? Uh, thank you so much, uh, Mr. Anderson. So uh, I will ask you the same question that I asked uh, Ms. Short about what happens in our parks. Uh, so Mount Davidson is under your management, um, but aside from the Armenian Day of Commemoration, there's hardly strictly bluegrass and outside lands and all sorts of stuff that happens in the park. Um, a million dollars for maintenance is not a lot of money, uh, it seems, for 3,400 acres. Um, is this something that uh, you would like to see increased? Is there like a timing issue in terms of uh, making sure that, that after uh, severe 
uh, storms or events that, um, you know, you can get to it quickly enough for stuff to happen that's already been scheduled. Well, and just, yeah, just to clarify, because we edit a little for brevity, we do have a, a $6 million operating, and that's our, you know, our staff, our city staff doing the work. But then it is uh, $1 million per year for, uh, how we do it is more programmatic tree assessments in key areas, and Stern Grove has been one of those, uh, Buena Vista Park, some of our forested parks. So the answer is, is that enough? I, I would say overall, no. Um, for sure, our hort science assessment that I mentioned earlier on really recommended at least a three to four times, uh, three to four times our, our number of staffing to, to reach what Carla was talking about, which is a programmatic approach where we could get to a 10 to 15 year, year cycle where we're actually maintaining the trees. We're pretty far from that. Um, in the case of emergencies though, I think we've been able to, uh, uh, when we had to move some move capital money around a bit this year, essentially, it was really fortunate that FEMA uh, came into the picture because we were able to move resources and devote more capital money. Um, but I think the answer to the question is, yeah, we could, we could use more. Thank you. Any questions for Mr. Anderson? Okay, thank you so much. Thank you. Um, uh, next, we have Lisa Wayne uh, from the PUC. Thank you for being here, Lisa. When did, you, when did Lisa go to SFPUC? It's been a couple of years now. Well, who knew? <laughs> Welcome, it's fine. Thank you. Good afternoon, Supervisors, President Peskin and uh, Chairman Melgar. Um, my name is Lisa Wayne. I'm the Watershed Resources Manager for the Public Utilities Commission in San Francisco, and I oversee the lands on the peninsula as well as San Francisco and our rights of way. Um, so the San Francisco Public Utilities Commission has infrastructure and properties throughout the city and county of San Francisco. Some are, are shown here on the map. Um, some of them contain trees and some of them do not. Um, we think of um, the trees on SFPUC property as uh, falling into one of two categories. Uh, our natural resource areas, which contain remnants of our San Francisco's original landscape. Um, and then properties that contain <clears throat> water storage and distribution infrastructure, our pipelines and our reservoirs that bring water to our residents of San Francisco. So some examples of these properties on the right, there's O'Shaughnessy Boulevard, it's a, a natural resource area. So these are some crews um, doing some roadside tree hazard removal uh, work. And then on the left, Sunset Reservoir. These are uh, landscaped areas around our reservoir. Um, and this was one of the tree failures that happened um, in the storms in January. Um, so we have a total of approximately 3,700 trees um, under um, SFPUC management. Um, so we had uh, 21 tree failures um, and damaged trees on our properties. So. Um, all in all, compared to my colleagues behind me, uh, we fared fairly well uh, through the storms. 
Um, so we had, for example, uh, trees that fell across the roadway here at Clarendon, a complete failure. Um, Lake Merced Hills, you can see the uprooting of the trees, very typical. Um, and all of those uh, tree failures from the storm have been addressed. Um, we also provided support to the Emergency Operations Center at the time of the emergency, so our crews went out and addressed, for example, uh, this pine tree that's leaning on um, a building at uh, Broadway and Kearney. So in the last few years um, at the PUC, we've built out an arborist crew uh, that resides at our, our property in uh, Lake Merced in San Francisco. This is the crew that responded to the emergency um, and does the ongoing tree maintenance um, in natural areas and our city distribution properties. Uh, the, trues, the, the crews excuse me, conduct general maintenance, pruning, removals, uh, replanting um, on all the properties. And the typical work um, includes addressing high hazard trees along roadways, like as shown here at Laguna Hana Reservoir, um, hazardous and unhealthy trees at residential interfaces, um, like here at Loxley, and trees affecting, affecting critical water delivery and infrastructure. Um, these crews are also doing um, our revegetation. And I'll just wrap up here with an example of the kind of work that we're doing in the city. Um, this is, this kind of represents sort of the, um, the full gamut of uh, trees on our property. This is a prop the Laguna Honda Reservoir at 7th and Clarendon. Um, and this is, I think we're now in year two of this project. It's a long-term project. Um, so Laguna Honda Reservoir contains natural areas. It has roadside edges. It has, in that middle slide, that whole upper um, stand of trees abuts uh, residences. Um, so it, it has the full gamut um, of, um, of tree conditions, if you will. Um, so the work there included addressing unhealthy trees along 7th Avenue. Like you can see the, the tops of this one on 7th Avenue is starting to die. It's drought, drought stressed. Um, we have begun to address what we call the wildland urban interface at the upper edges of that Laguna Honda Reservoir and also um, began some removals and thinning of um, trees that were affecting our infrastructure. This uh, water body is actually an emer emergency water source for the city and county of San Francisco. So trees that were affecting the dam as well as um, uh, power lines. Um, and then following the removals and prunings, uh, we have actually going in this winter is phase one of the reforestation and revegetation efforts. Um, we've grown 250 oaks and other um, native plants that we're, we'll begin to um, plant in, to replace those trees at Laguna Honda Reservoir, and these were grown at our our brand new facility in Sonol, our native plant nursery, and, and also by um, our colleagues from the Recreation and Park Department. So this is just year one. Um, this will be a multi-year project, as I said. Um, and I'm, um, that concludes my presentation. I'm happy to answer any questions. So I have a question that you may not have an answer to, um, and that is, uh, do you know approximately how many trees are in PUC land that is not in San Francisco. Oh, <laughs> many hundreds of thousands. Um, you know, we have in the Peninsula watershed alone, which is what I oversee, 
Um, we have, you know, it's 23,000 acres. Yeah. And much of that 23,000 acres is forested. Yeah. Um, mature redwood, you know, stands and um, old growth dug fir and you got, you name it. Um, it protects yeah. the watershed that yes. is for everybody. Exactly. Um, and Hetch Hetchy too, right? It, yes, yeah. yes. Okay, any questions for Ms. Wayne? Thank you. Thank, Thank you, you so much for the presentation. Um, so next, I would like to ask uh, Brian Wiedermeyer uh, to come to the po podium, uh, representing our MVP um, organization, Friends of the Urban Forest. Uh, Fuff has planted more than 60,000 street trees, um, almost half of San Francisco's street tree canopy. They uh, war water 500 trees every week uh, and replace thousands of square feet of concrete mm -hmm. with uh, drought-tolerant plants and trees. So that's why, MVP, thank you so much mm -hmm. for being here. Thank you so much, Chair Melgar and Supervisors. Uh, Brian Wiedenmeyer, Executive Director of Friends of the Urban Forest. I want to share a little bit about our work um, and how we do our work planting trees across San Francisco um, and how we have responded to those storms. So our mission is to connect people with nature and each other by planting and caring for San Francisco's trees and gardens. And the model that we use is really unique because it does involve um, the community in such a key way. Um, many of you have been to some of our community tree planting events on Saturdays where neighbors, community organizations, volunteers come together to support the work of our full-time staff um, to get those trees in the ground. And we also have volunteer opportunities for tree care, so caring for the young trees for the first three years. Um, this is so crucial and important because um, I think, as uh, Eric said earlier, um, this landscape uh, did not include a lot of trees pre-colonization, and that um, what we do in the built environment here really does involve people in a unique way, and we need our residents not only to um, help us plant trees, but to care for them as they grow. Um, so, uh, what does that look like in terms of goals for our work? This fiscal year, um, we have a goal of planting 1,500 street trees, and um, as a reminder, uh, we, we do plant almost exclusively street trees in the public right-of-way, so that means removing concrete uh, mostly on our sidewalks. Um, that goal over the next three fiscal years is 7,500 trees, so we want to get us uh, as a city above that replacement rate, and we really are, uh, you know, folks, regular folks can plant trees um, with a permit from Public Works, but Friends of the Urban Forest is doing uh, the majority of that planting work on our city streets, and um, under this plan and under our three-year goal would really increase that to a sizable share of the new trees planted on San Francisco streets. So where do we plant news trees? Um, it's really important, I think, uh, since we are here to talk a little bit about resources and funding for this work. Um, we are a proud grantee of the city and county of San Francisco through the Department of Public Works um, for our workforce development, tree planting, and care program. Um, but we also get funded by the state of California, um, CAL FIRE, the Department of Forestry and Fire Prevention. Uh, we have two active grants with CAL FIRE um, to plant new trees, and they use the Cal Enviro screen tool to focus on neighborhoods um, that have a variety of factors. Uh, um, both are under canopy to have uh, lower income residents, communities of color, uh, everything from percentage of residents who are seniors, people with disabilities. All of that filters down to the census tract area, and, and these, this is the current map with our current CAL FIRE grants where we are funded um, by CAL FIRE to plant new trees. So when we do those tree plantings, we also always look for empty basins. So I don't want you to think of these as totally separate, but a lot of this is cutting concrete and um, uh, removing impervious surface and planting new trees in new basins. Um, and we've been doing that all over the city, uh, but particularly focused in these core census tracts and neighborhoods. 
Um, this past year, we've uh, revived our uh, replacement tree program, and we have a real focus on replacing trees that we've lost, and that focus has only become more important after the winter storms. We've gotten lots of requests um, from folks who've lost larger trees, and we have been able to address many of those sites over the last year in neighborhoods like South of Market, like Hayes Valley, North Beach and Telegraph Hill. We were just out in the sunset on Saturday. So that replacement tree planting program, um, many of those trees are planted with funding from our Public Works grant, um, but also from private philanthropy and other sources that we leverage uh, to do this work. So what are the opportunities? We've talked and heard about the Inflation Reduction Act funding, and a huge congrats again to Public Works and, and the city and county of San Francisco for this large grant. It is $12 million. Um, but a, a quick reminder, the caveat that I want to put on that, and, and I'll talk about challenges in a second, is that we know that our urban forestry plan has identified the amount of funding needed by 2040 to meet those goals, and it's $155 million. So you take $12 million out of that, and we're still left with $143 million of un, unfunded planting work. Um, I also want to call out a partner who's not here, which is the school district. Um, the San Francisco Unified School District received about $10 million in funding from the state of California for a green schoolyards initiative, which is going to focus on four school sites in our southeast neighborhoods. And uh, the wonderful street tree nursery, which we talked about, um, which I believe Director Short talked about earlier, um, a great photo from the ribbon cutting with the governor who was present. Uh, but that's not only going to be a workforce development opportunity, and we're proud to partner with Public Works on that program, but a place, a source of replacement stock, especially for species that are hard to find, that we want to plant a lot of on our streets because they do particularly well in San Francisco's challenging microclimates. Um, speaking of challenges, um, uh, that IRA funding is going to be great, but it focuses on many of the exact same census tracts that CAL FIRE already funds us to plant. So we are going to be going back to sites again where folks have maybe told us they're not interested in having a tree. Um, we're really going to have to focus on deep community engagement and involvement to make sure that we are in some ways inducing demand for street trees um, and or have a strategy. I'm sure many of you hear from your constituents regularly about people who don't want a tree in front of their house. How do we get those folks to a yes, I want a tree? Um, uh, the available planting sites pose difficulties not only in whether the public is, you know, public wants trees there, but in the infrastructure underneath the sidewalk. Um, one of the things I've learned in this job that is fascinating is just what's underneath San Francisco's sidewalks. Um, those can be utilities, they can be unmarked sub-sidewalk basements, as happened in a recent planting we did in the Tenderloin in Soma. Um, uh, all sorts of surprises, and especially as we're focusing on these denser neighborhoods, you know, south of Market, the Tenderloin, um, areas like Knob Hill, that's where the most surprises are. So they're toughest to plant and remove the concrete there. Um, and as I mentioned, a permanent source of funding for tree planting does not yet exist. We did a beautiful thing with Proppy in 2016 to have a permanent set aside in the general fund for tree care. We need to find and figure out a same or similar source of funding for tree planting and young tree care, which includes, and, and we do um, tree care for the first three years as well as watering. We have two watering trucks that water. Um, we have capacity to do about 1,000 trees per week. Great, that, that concludes my remarks, and I'll be happy to answer any questions you have. Thank you so much. President Paskin. I do not have any comments other than I just wanted to thank and acknowledge Brian and Friends of the Urban Forest for the 
uh, now four or five tree plantings in the four in the northeast corner of San Francisco mm -hmm. uh, in what is commonly known as the third supervisorial district from the upper tenderloin lower knob hill all the way to north beach and fisherman's wharf thank you for those efforts it was our pleasure thanks for joining us yeah thank you i mean i also uh have to say working with your organization has always been a pleasure and it always makes neighbors happy so thank you so much for everything you do you're welcome, Chair Melgar, and I encourage any of you to come out on a Saturday to join us. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, Supervisor Preston. Thank you, Chair Melgar. Ditto to my colleagues' comments, and I don't know if I can track how many uh, trees we've partnered on in District 5. It's been pretty extensive between Tenderloin, Lower Haight, and, mm -hmm. and other spots, so always a pleasure. and appreciate your work. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Next, I would like to welcome Morgan Vesefovel, uh, arborist from UCSF. Um, UCSF manages a vibrant 60 acres right smack in the middle of our city. Um, some of the trails are still closed uh, since the storms um, from the first quarter of 2024. Can you give us a quick update on the trails and on your ongoing efforts? Welcome. Hi, how are you? Yes, um, so I'm the arborist for Monsutro, and I'm, we're gonna talk, talk very quickly about what happened and uh, how we engage the issue of storm. So, Mr. Vesefovel, if you could just speak closer? closer to the mic yeah. so we can hear you, thank so you. So I'm gonna go very quickly, just uh, Monsutro is kind of in the middle of the city, you know, and uh, we have, we UCSF won about 61 acres, of Montsuitro, in total is 80 acres, and there's a 20 acre that is owned, it's called the interior, interior green belt that's owned by Rec and Park. I'm just gonna say that we have five miles of trail, it's open to public, and the point that I'm gonna be putting on this, it's we're about 908 feet of elevations. So we were the first to get all the storms coming from the, from the northwest and west, yeah. we get hit really hard. So this is just a, qu a quick picture. So we had some minor and a little, uh, some minor slide, landslide, and also we had, we lost between 350 to 400 trees on, from, from March to, uh, so from January to March, you know. And I will say like the first months was the, the first load of trees that we lose a lot, we lost a lot of trees. And the March windstorm uh, was in March, was one, March 20, 22nd, the 21st, the wind came south, I believe it was uh, uh, southeast, which is very rare, but such an intensity that we had really very large tree that fell over completely on the opposite side of the lane. So this is what that picture um, on the left, the larger picture looks like. So, um, we have a vegetation management plan, Monsutro, that we started in 2018. And the reason why we had a vegetation management plan is because uh, the reserve is in decline. And the reason was, uh, you know, climate change, soil and uh, soil culture treatments and pests and disease over the years. So we do have that plan. And basically, we started removing trees and taking care of the land really since 2018. And we have a tree risk assessment and we have the vegetation management plan. And the ability of the vegetation management plan is we have the ability to use this 
and to help us prepare and move forward as, as we have those storms coming in. The goal of the vegetation management plan is to, um, to make the, the forest more resilient now. So this is not, there's no street trees here, it's a forest, and so it's a different type of management than the urban street tree that you'll find in the street. And so one of the pictures, the large picture with all the street you just saw, it's that big red area in the middle. And so those trees fell in March, but because we had some birds and we had concern, we closed this area during basically the whole year. And we're only coming to clean this area this year. And we have a little area in the corner uh, on the north side of the, our building and our campus. And so we are going to be removing trees there, including the trees that fell this winter. Um, and that's one of the reasons why some of the trails are still closed because we have those areas that were closed um, because of the storm. So we had to repair trails, we had to maintain and remove trees, the area we had to walk right away. But those areas were on hold because of bird nesting season, you know, so we just shut them down for now. So, um, in addition, that this is part of the higher part of the of the canyon that will get savagely damaged by the high wind. The lower part had a lot of damages, and so we work with the Sutro stewards. We remove some of those trees that fell during the that during the storm in the lower canyon because they were falling on the roads and. Uh, and so right now we work with Sutro Stewart and Breakin Park and, um, and to, to restore the Woodland Canyon. And so we're looking this a little bit deeper now, not just the trees now, Sutro, it's a, it's a large piece of land in the middle of the city. And also we're, we're looking at our water runoff and how can we get that, the, manage it a little bit better, you know, add trees, add native plants, you know, bring up the biodiversity. Of the, uh, of the reserve and also, you know, limit the damage of water going down the hills. So this is very shortly what happened in Monsutro. Thank you. Um, can I ask you what the timeline is for uh, finishing the, um, you know, the, the uh, repairs to the trails? And also if you could talk a little bit about your collaboration with uh, Sutro Trails. Yes. So... We're in a process of bidding. It's a long process, you know, because it's a very, very large project. And uh, so we're looking to start very soon the work and removing those trees, in particular in the canyon, because the canyon has been closed all year long. And so we want to maintain the space open uh, for the public. And, and so the Sutro Stewart that work with us, and in addition, that the Golden Gate Audubon Society, mm -hmm. and other group like um, Urban Riders and... They came and helped us out, fix some, some trail, because we had to close the reserve completely twice and, and close it and reopening and depending on what happened during the, the storm. So, um, so we needed their help, and they came and helped us out, uh, you know, uh, working on the trail and, and what we're working on right now, it's uh, the Edgewood Canyon uh, with Rekin Park and us. Okay, thank you so much for your presentation. Thank you very much. Okay, so our last presenter is Stephen Duffy uh, with the Presidio Trust. Um, thank you. Welcome. Uh, 
The Presidio Trust uh, manages about 300 acres uh, in our city. Um, and if you could talk to us a little bit about your experience last year and your plans going forward. Yeah, thanks. Let me just get my presentation set up here. Okay, of course. minor technical difficulties. Yeah. Okay, well thank you for the invitation to, um, to come here and speak a little bit about uh, our maintenance and uh, renewal plans for the Presidio. So, um, Basically, I'm going to give you a 30,000-foot view, you know, just the big picture, short and sweet, um, and we'll kind of roll from there, and you guys can ask some questions. Um, Presidio Forest, uh, federal property. Um, we're a federal organization, roughly 300 acres of historic forest, but the park is, you know, 14, 1,500 acres big. There's plenty of trees in the, in the landscape zone. I'm kind of focused on this presentation more about the historic forest aspect. Um, plantings, you know, were done in a 10-year time span, mostly over the late 1800s. Three dominant species, bluegum eucalyptus, Monterey cypress, Monterey pine. And since we began our reforestation efforts 20 years ago, roughly 9,000 trees have been planted over 53 acres, some of which have been removed as we work down towards, like, ideal coverage, 30 to 50 trees per acre. We have kind of like a three-pronged approach to um, maintenance and renewal. Um, we have a cyclical risk assessment that happens every four years. We have hazard mitigation, pruning, and removals, and we have our reforestation efforts. So the cyclical risk assessment is done through like a GIS system, ArcGIS. Uh, we do a level two tree risk assessment every four years. So it's looking at each tree, looking at, you know, major likelihood of failure rate. Is it a whole tree? Is it a branch? Is it a stem? Where are the targets? We carry an inventory of roughly 8,000 trees. Everything six inches in diameter or larger gets assessed. That kind of brings us to our hazard mitigation program, which is a follow-up on the risk assessment. So based on these risks that the trees pose, we will come in and either reduce those risks or remove them completely. Um, and anything, like I mentioned earlier, anything with a target, road, trail, uh, bench, a building, high voltage lines, telecom, all of those targets get looked at. Bringing us to reforestation. So over the last 20 years, we've kind of learned a lot about what works in our park. Um, and coupling and touching on what others have said, we have a big issue with storms, frequency, and intensity. So we've kind of worked towards this um, integration between plants, native, and trees. And happening at the same time, it creates a much more robust and resilient forest for these big storms. The storms themselves were devastating. They were formidable. 22 inches of rain in 17 days in the park. I'm sure it was quite similar in the city. Winds in excess of close to 70 miles an hour. So at that rate, you're not only losing the weak trees, you're losing healthy, stable trees. Um, 
Not a lot of prediction can go into that. You just kind of triage and have to work with what you've got. Um, we lost probably 100 to 200 trees right in there in the managed forest. There's plenty more that fell in the unmanaged forest, but those are kind of off the beaten path. They're, they're not in anybody's way. No harm or risk to those trees and an important habitat feature. Um, I think that the successes of our program are kind of evident in the aftermath of this storm. Um, we have a two-to-one replacement, and due to the fact that we lost fewer trees and virtually no um, structural damage to our infrastructure was um, great, very limited on outages as well. So um, I think our program's working, and we keep working to improve it. That's really all I have. I'll open it up for some questions. Thank you so much. Um, I don't think we have any questions uh, okay. from, uh, but thank you so much for everything, yeah. and thank you for the overview. Yeah, great. Okay, um, with that, let's open this item up for public comment, Mr. Clerk. Thank you. This will be the last time we take public comment at today's meeting. This is for agenda item number 10. If you have comments on agenda item number 10, please line up to speak along the, lest, uh, the western wall of this room. And if we have any speakers that are ready, please come forward to lectern. Good afternoon. Thank you for calling this hearing. I'm Denise Louie, San Francisco resident and homeowner. Uh, sorry about the dark glasses. I forgot to bring my reading glasses. Uh, so far, this hearing has been about uh, climate change, uh, storm-related impacts on trees. And I want to shift the focus a little bit to wildfire risk impacts of climate change, because, of course, trees are being drought-stressed. And a little bit of history on this. Um, it was in 2014 that residents and I started calling attention to drought-stressed mostly eucalyptus trees in uh, city-owned open spaces. Uh, Supervisor Mandelman called a town hall focused on 70-acre Glen Park, Glen Canyon Park, and where the residents from Diamond Heights, Glen Park, and Mount Davidson expressed concerns about the risks of wildfire. Of course, we all care about our homes, our families, and our personal wealth. Then in 2019, former supervisor Norman Yee called a hearing focused on reducing the risk of catastrophic wildfire. And I encourage you to keep in mind reduction of fuel uh, for wildfire as you call for phase two of the urban forest plan covering all city-owned trees and open spaces. I urge you to prioritize Glen Canyon Park, which does not receive much fog drip could I have an extra minute, please? You have please? 30 seconds. I urge you to prioritize, uh, and there's a preschool deep in the canyon. I encourage you to hold a hearing to follow up on Supervisor Yee's hearing regarding reduction of wildfire risk. One thing to look at is Rec Park's past policy of surveying trees only uh, two parks per year. Even then, only trees along roads and trails would be surveyed. Could I have one Speaker's more Speaker's time has concluded. Sorry. Thank you very much, Denise Louie, for sharing your comments to the committee. Sorry to cut you off. We do have to move on to the next speaker. Next speaker, please. Hi. Um, I have a couple documents I'd like to share with the, with the committee as well. You're just giving them to the committee? Um, yeah. Okay. I'll come and retrieve them in a moment. I'll start your time now.
Um, my name is Andrew Sullivan. I'm here representing the urban, the San Francisco Urban Forestry Council. Um, we, um, as I hope you guys know, are a advisory council, city advisory council, to the um, uh, mayor as well as the board of supervisors on all issues related to the urban forest of San Francisco. Um, this year um, represents uh, the 20th anniversary of the urban forest. Um, annual report that the council puts out and I would like to just highlight a couple of issues that and kind of trends that we've been following and that uh, I think deserve attention. Um, firstly, the uh, city of San Francisco has got one of the smallest urban forestry, urban forest canopies of any city in the, in the United States. And what we've been looking at in the past, uh, over the past five years is that not only are we not meeting the goals laid out by both the city's climate action plan as well as the urban forestry phase one street trees plan, but that we're um, actually going in the wrong direction. We've seen a decrease over the last five years in the total percentage and amount of city um, uh, canopy, and that we similarly have seen um, there's not been a, a dedicated and um, committed funding of any of those trees. The goal with the urban forestry master plan phase one was to increase the number of street trees, and we're talking again just street trees, but to 155,000 uh, citywide uh, from the current 125. Just to meet that goal alone, what we have calculated is that the city would need approximately $15.1 million in annual dedicated funding. I think the letter that we had sent, the letter, this letter dated February of 2023 was sent to the mayor as well as the full board of supervisors urging um, action on finding that, that the funding to meet, again, the goals adopted, stated and adopted by the Excuse climate action plan concluded. as well as the urban forestry plan. Thank you, Andrew Sullivan, for sharing your comments with the committee. I'll retrieve those documents and okay. add them to a part of the file. Can we get the next speaker, please? Thank you. You can just leave them on the rail. I'll pick them up. Please begin. Thank you. Uh, my name is Josh Clip. I'm the co-founder of Mission Verde. I've been a planting leader with Friends of the Urban Forest since 2010, and just about every presenter in here probably already knows who I am. Um, the Public Works newsletter this week noted that San Francisco has an urban canopy percentage of 13.7%, and that around the country, major cities average 27%. So we're less than half of what... Uh, other cities are, are managing. Um, Director Short called out Street Tree SF, the annual $20 million set aside since 2017, which is for pruning and removal only, not watering and not planting. Um, planting and watering comes from Prop K, grants, and the Adopt a Tree Fund, and we've already heard, based on a lot of numbers, that um, what we've got dedicated for tree planting and watering isn't cutting it. Um, the 2015 Urban Forest Plan called for 50 uh, 50,000 new trees over 20 years, or effectively a net 2,500 additional trees every year. But according to, as Andrew just noted, the Urban Forestry Council's 2023 report, since the 2017 street tree census, we have lost 1,263 trees. And that report was issued before the, the, we knew what happened with the storms. So we're losing badly. Um, on Rec Park, um, They've been promising a two-to-one replacement since at least their 2018 strategic plan. And for clarification, uh, parks have a have, tend to have the big trees. So when you take out a 36-inch Monterey Cypress and you put in a two-inch sapling, that's what they're calling one-for-one -one replacement. Three questions. Uh, how do par departments coordinate 
on the urban forest? Um, why has no department acted on the climate actions plan, climate actions plan call for policies of preservation and basal replacement? And finally, what will be the action taken as a result of today? Thank you. Thank you, Josh Clip, for sharing your comments with the committee. Do we have anyone further who has public comment on agenda item number 10? Madam Chair. Okay. With that, public comment is now closed. Thank you so much uh, to all the presenters. I appreciate everybody's work on it. Um, I think we can all acknowledge that we have some deficiencies uh, in our approach uh, to uh, maintaining and uh, growing our city's urban canopy. Uh, we need city agencies and our state and federal partners to try to coordinate better uh, to achieve the goal of the urban forest plan of 155,000 trees by 2040. Um, the trees uh, help us realize the goals of the uh, San Francisco Climate Action Plan as they sequester carbon, uh, make sure that uh, they mitigate, we, we, we can, that's the surest way to mitigate flooding, especially in low income areas that have a small urban canopy. And at 14%, San Francisco tree canopy lags behind uh, LA, which is 21%, New York, which is 24%, and Seattle uh, and Portland, uh, which are both 30%. So at the rate we're going, uh, we're going to need reforms to the status quo uh, and also to find a sustainable source of funding for planting, uh, not just uh, maintenance, which is even that not adequate enough. So I am thankful to uh, Speaker Emerita Pelosi for the $12 million in federal assistance uh, through the Inflation Reduction Act, but that was one thing. Um, I think it's also a call to private citizens in San Francisco to step up and help us achieve these goals. Uh, plant those trees on your sidewalk. Uh, it will, in the long term, help us more than having an, ex uh, you know, easy parking space or not having to sweep once in a while. Um, I would like to conclude today's hearing with a quote from the Lorax, unless someone like you cares a whole awful lot, nothing is going to get better. It's not. Um, that is Dr. Seuss. So thank you, colleagues. Um, I would like to make a motion to file this hearing if there are no comments uh, from my colleagues or did you want to? Okay. Um, so uh, please call the roll on that. Uh, on the Mr. motion Clark. offered by the chair that this be heard and filed, Vice Chair Preston. Preston, aye. Member Peskin. Aye. Peskin, aye. Chair Melgar. Aye. Melgar, aye. Madam Chair, there are three ayes. Thank you. Uh, are there any more items on our agenda today? There is no further business. Okay. Thank you. We are now adjourned.